Hello and welcome to Ghoulies Unflushed Live! We are live! We are at Hardin's Family Carnival in the beautiful town of Greenville for a spectacular Halloween broadcast. It's a beautiful night. We plan on taking you around Hardin's Family Carnival this evening before finally finishing at the famous spook house featured in Ghoulies 2, Satan's Den! We have a packed show for you this Halloween with special guests Ken Hall, Stephen Greenberg, Arturo Gill, and a special performance from Fun Never Starts. Shall we do a guest? Let's do a guest! Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for special effects artist, writer, and director, Ken Hall! Notice you have a Dude. Critter shirt on, Paul. Yeah. You know, I, I worked on that. Yeah, yeah, I saw. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think you've pretty much covered all of the uh, Little Rob Monsters. <laughs> critters, well, I, 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 I Yeah, I, I did. Hobgoblins. I, I monster movies. Yeah. I was, uh, I, I puppeteered for a couple of days on the New York, New York sequence in Gremlin, Gremlins 2. Yeah. Which was funny because they had about a hundred or so people uh, we would have like a gremlin on each arm, you know, it's, they even had helmets that had a half a gremlin sticking out of the top <laughs> and they had gridded off the set. The floor was removable. So they, they removed a section of floor, shot us doing all these crazy things and, you know, changed hats and things on the puppets. And then we mm -hmm. moved to another uh, section and then they composited. So it looked like there were thousands in the shot and then they layered dropping balloons and confetti and stuff yeah uh it was actually very cool one day i was actually coming out of the sound stage and passed um albert whitlock uh yeah. who is the the matt painter who did a lot of the hitchcock movies mm -hmm. and Hindenburg and things like that and he was one of those guys who retired almost as many times as frank sinatra did he was uh, <laughs> uh you know just constantly coming out of retirement to supervise <laughs> something which I'm sure that was, you know, the case on Gremlins 2. <laughs> and then I worked on the the first two Ghoulies movie. The first mm -hmm. one I was just, uh, uh, I am literally credited with my brother as additional Ghoulie operator. You know, <laughs> it's like, not puppeteer, additional Ghoulie operator. And it was kind of embarrassing because <laughs> we, were going, we were going to see it opening night in Hollywood. So we're in line for uh to see ghoulies mm -hmm. and we look back and there's rick baker who we we've known socially for a while and with, with a lot of his crew guys and we're going rick why why are you here and he goes well uh he goes well uh, there was a screening of graystoke tonight but we could you know it was over over full so we decided to come here i said Really? <laughs> Great <laughs> to ghoulies? And he's, well, you know, uh, I, I, I don't even watch television. I think I've seen the pre preview like three times. So, yeah. and of course, I didn't say anything about the fact that we worked on it. And our name popped up at the uh, at the end. And, you know, we were walking out and Rick goes, hey, nice puppeteering, you guys. And I was like, oh, God. It's <laughs> 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 not serious. <laughs> Um, so, so the ghoulies and then of course, uh, the infamous hobgoblins, mm -hmm. which uh, keeps, uh, keeps coming back to haunt me. Apparently, <laughs> uh, 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 Joel Hodson and some of the mystery science theater team did a thing on, uh, 
on uh, YouTube and they mm-hmm. ran the, the Hobgoblins episode. And when my name comes up, he says, Kenneth Hall, I know that guy. He's a good <laughs> and then, then, then they see the puppets, that, you know, and, and you know, I said to say, say that there was puppeteering involved uh, is a, is a kindness because I, I was doll waving. <laughs> and then what, what else? I mean, I've, I, I have a script that I would love to ever to get made called, mm-hmm. uh, uh, called goblins. And apparently yeah. that title was used once, but then they changed the movie to Troll 2. Ah, yes. Mm. <laughs> and look what happened there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess they, they wanted to, to, to piggyback on something that had some relative success. But uh, yeah. Troll 2 is, yeah, you know, has has been called one of the worst movies ever made. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I, I, I think it uh, takes, uh, takes the cake from Plan 9, for example. Well, um, Ghoulies, I think Ghoulies is down as your first um, uh, sort of break into the industry, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you must have done Dungeon Master before that, at least, right? Uh, uh, I did Dungeon Master before that. It was released after, but I, I mm. did Dungeon Master before. I had been kind of a, um, uh, a, a sort of working as a PA, trying to get in the door uh, at uh, Empire Pictures. Mm. And, you know, I, I did some running on the. Um, God, um, I think it was called Sword Kill. I think it came out as Ghost Warrior, the, yeah, the yeah. frozen samurai movie, and um, stuff like that. But then Debbie Dion, who is Charlie's uh, wife, uh, who is also kind of a big mucky muck in the script development department, um, she, uh, I, I showed her, a, I had a little flyer with some pictures of some stuff, including a werewolf I had done for a, a stage show. And she said, do you still have that? And I said, yeah. I said, we, we, uh, we'll stick you in the movie. And my brother wound up being the, Jack the Ripper, and uh, which was really funny because they had to start out. Of course, you know, in my case, they just put my costume on the on a mannequin. But then they had other mannequins dressed up and uh, uh, they had to do a mannequin of Cleve. So Cleve got a mannequin. And what he did, uh, he had filled a bowl full of alginate and t- took a deep breath and plunged his face into it. And imagine, apparently it, it set up fast enough before he had to come up for air. And then he poured plaster in that and then took the mannequin half face and shoved it in. <laughs> so it had plaster face of my, my brother on it. And he just sh- kind of, shaved down the rough edges a little bit and uh it was so funny because his eyes were closed and he just painted open eyes over his <laughs> the plaster oh, eye. no. <laughs> so but that was like for the first time i met john carl beekler mm-hmm. who was there doing uh some other stuff on it and uh you know later on i wound up working for him not on the first ghoulies uh but, except for a couple of days where I uh, came out, went out to there actually, Charlie actually rented Roger Corman's stage out at Venice. And to say stage is, you know, kind of uh, misleading because it was actually an old Hammond lumber yard. He had one big area in the main building uh, that they use. I think the, um, uh, some um, sets for forbidden world were still up in there. And then the, 
second stage was actually the lumber mill. And uh, you know, hardly a soundstage. I remember being behind a wall, you know, uh, working with a puppet. And I, I, I went on a break. I backed up and I backed up to what I thought was a solid wall, but it was actually a tarpaulin. And I pulled it back and you, I could see through a chain link fence out into the street running behind the, <laughs> behind the place. So it's amazing they got decent sound on it. And, of course, the, the first ghoulies were really... We made jokes about, you know, how they put the hair on, that they, you know, yeah. just break glue on them and then roll them on the floor of a barber shop. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, there would there'd be three of each creature there. And, you know, um, John, you know, would say, well, one is uh, one is the hero ghoulie and one is the mid-range ghoulie and one is the stunt ghoulie. And I'd stick my hand in and say, okay, well, this one isn't cutting into my finger as bad as the last one. So I guess this is. <laughs> Hero ghoulie, you know. <laughs> but yeah, we were there for that opening scene with Michael DeBars and so forth, who I ran into uh, at a convention recently. And uh, oh, wow. you know, he did, he was, he was very cool. Was he signing uh, plenty of ghoulies photos? You know, I honestly didn't look and see what he was selling. I don't know. Wait, I, I, I would assume so because I guess. Uh, I mean, he was a he was a musician primarily, I think, mm -hmm. and so. It is. But yeah. I would imagine being at an autograph show, you know, he would probably bring stuff. You you never know, you know, with, with people like I was at a Monster Palooza and I had um, Richard Anderson next to me, and well, Richard is quite old, and you know, I was hoping for a Forbidden Planet still because I've got several signed by you know the other actors. From the film, uh, he had a ton of six million dollar man photos, uh, but nothing. And the girl who was kind of the, kind of watching over and making sure he he, he was okay uh, said, "I can't, can't believe he left the Forbidden Planet stills." But uh, so I wound mm -hmm. up getting uh, the, the one still he had from Curse of the Faceless Man <laughs> signed. <laughs> I've got to ask then, actually, you say so you mentioned you're on, on the Hammond Lumberyard for the opening sh scene in the movie. Do you mm. remember anything about the um, the chest bursting sequence, which uh, uh, got cut? Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, they were shooting it that day and it was never going to. Well, wait a minute. I'm trying to think. I don't know if they. If it actually if they actually did have show the heart coming out, I, if they did, it was going to be really quick. Because uh, I think the heart was on a broomstick, yeah. <laughs> and they were just poking the uh, this dummy chest from behind yeah. and splitting, and then I think it finally did that. But they they obviously cut away before that happened. Uh, and uh, I did visit the Waddles estate, which is in Hollywood, which is yeah was the main house, and I think with the exception of the the basement, which was the set. They built out at Corman's. Um, it was all shot in, inside and outside, you know, the Waddles yeah. estate. Yeah. And uh, it's got great, wonderful grounds. I remember uh, going with some friends to an Easter picnic there one time. Yeah, oh, cool. Right. And, uh, but uh, 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 Jim Wynorski also used uh, uh, the back of it, uh, the garden area mm -hmm. for um, uh, uh, Lost Empire. Lost Empire, yeah. This is his first <laughs> film, which is basically Enter the Dragon with large-breasted women. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, 
But yeah, apparently the the art crew really did damage to the place, and it was years before they uh, rented it out again. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard a little bit about that. I think um, I mean the end. I think in the end they lost it. Um, the the whatever the was it the Hollywood Heritage Society who were looking after the thing. Yeah, I think they they lost it because they were accused of having late night parties and things there. And I was oh. kind of I was kind of wanted to know you know hope that you know what went on in Ghoulies was slightly uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> influential in what they were doing. But uh, well, also the surprise in that film, you know, looking back is uh, uh, Mariska Hargitay. Mm-hmm. Uh, who not only and they were making a big deal about her because you know she was Jane Mansfield's daughter. She was actually in the car when Jane was killed, and you know the daughter of Mickey Hargitay, you know the kind of muscle man who did a lot of Euro horror, the Lady Frankenstein. He was in at least one Hercules movie with with Jane, and uh, but you know who knew that she was going to become this you know major major TV star all those years later. Mm. Hopefully she still is proud of the work she did in that movie because you know. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, 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 and she says it twice in the film. Instead of saying spooky, she says spooky. <laughs> spooky. <laughs> well, you mentioned you mentioned Paul's Critters T-shirt. Yeah. Um, as that's a kind of a nice bridge between the first and oh, second yeah. Ghoulies. Oh yeah, that's um, another little creatures movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I uh, uh, I was working with the Kyoto Brothers. They uh, were sharing a space with uh, John Nolan and Tony Dublin, who had worked on uh, Reanimator. Um, and uh, it, it was the warehouse area of, uh, of what was, uh, at the time, an old recording studio on uh, Sunset and Western. And I later found out, years later, found out it was uh, the uh, um, original home of Projects Unlimited, which was Gene Warren's company. And, you know, uh, on shows like The Outer Limits and stuff like that. So, Mm. um, but anyway, it was not air conditioned. It was dead summer. It was hotter than hell. And the Kyoto's, have sometimes, uh, and I love them, by the way, they're good friends, although I thought I would never work with them again after that <laughs> first experience, but uh, are, uh, have been dubbed the Kyoto Brawlers because they fight among themselves uh, a lot. Um, and they pretty primarily only did stop motion, so they hadn't really done live action puppets or anything. So they had, li- they had bought a moose pelt, a pelt of an actual large shaggy moose and they wanted to use those on these puppets now the original puppets uh, were i think maybe this tall okay mm-hmm. now uh they enlarged them on the sequels by the way after after mm-hmm. this time because they they got so narrow towards the bottom that you could barely get your hand up in <laughs> and so they were trying to pack these things with lip snarls and blank mechanisms and so forth. And it was crazy. And I said, this moose pelt, you couldn't, you can't get the skin off because then it's just, you've just got a pile of loose hairs. And with the skin, it's like trying to cover a puppet with shoe leather. And so I, I said, okay, I can get the uh, moose pelt on the on the back and on the top of the head. So what you see at the top 
from the front view is basically all 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 the booths you see until you see them from the back. Mm. So what I did is I I did uh, I, I I got uh, um, yak hair, you know, which is uh, uh, used a lot in makeup. It was actually used for the Wolfman, the original Wolfman, uh, mm -hmm. because it has kind of a coarser texture. And then I used crepe wool on the bellies to give it kind of a soft fluffy effect. So I, 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 I can claim credit for designing the, the hair work on them. And then later on the, uh, they decided to uh, do a, uh, a big critter at the end. Uh, actually mm -hmm. Bob, uh, uh, Bob Shea from uh, new line came over and he said, let's, let's do a big critter at the end. And I said, well, how big of a critter? And he still had to put a little person inside of it. But I did a lot of the costume, uh, foam fabricated the, the body and all that. The, the Stephen sculpted a face and all, but uh, uh, that And I, I also remember taking feathers and taking a razor blade and cutting the feather part just to leave the quill, which are the little spikes they shoot out of the back. Oh, wow. And Charlie who's the artist, he's really responsible for the design and look of all the stuff that they do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he saw me and a couple of other people, you know, cutting these feathers by hand. And he goes, and he picks up a fe uh, an uncut feather and walks over to an electric pencil sharpener and sticks it in and, <laughs> and mangles it. And he goes, hey, he goes, hey, you never know till you try. And I said, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, yeah, the first critters, uh, mm -hmm. they, uh, so the, the big critter was added. And also, they realized that it, uh, originally the, the aliens just blew up the house mm -hmm. before they got destroyed. And that was it. And they said, um, and then I, I, I might have even been test screened and everybody said, well, that's kind of a bummer. You know, these nice people get invaded and, you know, lose their home and the whole nine yards. So yeah. um, they added the ending where, you know, he presses the button and the house comes back. But they had yeah. actually blown the hell out of that house, which apparently they built it as a yeah. set. So like the back, uh, the backside was open. So. They were shooting interiors and exteriors in that house, and when they blew it up, it was gone. So they uh, um, uh, had Fantasy Two build a miniature, and they designed it to collapse. You know, that with cables inside that pulled it down, and then of course reverse reverse the film, and the house magically yeah. became a new. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> Uh, just a, another thing on critters, you know, they, when they decided to do a big critter, they had uh, casting uh, 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 for little people. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them showed up at the effects studio, uh, including Angelo Rosito, who had just gotten back from uh, um, um, uh, Australia doing uh, Beyond Thunderdome. And but I mean, he, he was in Todd Browning's Freaks. Yeah. He worked with Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, and it, it was he was really really tiny. He was probably uh, maybe a little less than three feet tall, and and there were these other little people, some of whom I'd worked with on on previous shows. But he's kind of kind of came in there. Said, yeah, I just got back from 
uh, Australia. Yeah, they, they, they treated me nice there. You know, it was like, well, <laughs> apparently used to work at a newsstand off Hollywood Boulevard for years. Of course, when I saw Angie, I said, there's no way I'm putting this old, old little person in, in, in a, a foam suit in the middle of the summer. You know, I don't want to be mm. the guy that killed Angela Rosito, you know. So <laughs> and they finally decided they they were trying to cut corners and uh, they uh, um uh, did not want to hire a union person. And obviously, pretty much any little person that wants to be in films is union. So they finally found this uh, dwarf who was an alcoholic. And I remember trying to life cast the little son of a bitch. And he kept, <laughs> he practically kept falling out of the life cast. And, you know, and then we put the thing which was missing the head. So it was open at the top on him. And he would go, uh, uh, yeah, because he's hung over from the night before. And, uh, um, you know, I said, he's not going to make it. And I guess the guy, they fi- they finally fired him and hired a guy who had been an Ewok. Mm-hmm. Like, there wasn't a little person that wasn't a, an Ewok, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's most of my Critters saga. Yeah. No, I thought oh, one more great thing. <laughs> Tony Dublin, who is who is uh, has, has become a good friend, and we've worked together many times and so forth. But he was charged with making the uh, the guns for the bounty hunters, which were on their hips and kind of swiveled up and extended and retracted. And he was playing around with uh, blank shotgun shells, and he would he would fire them off inside the studio and uh he would at least he'd get firing a hole and we go oh god and whatever we had we didn't want to get ruined we'd throw ourselves on top of it like we were you know sheltering a grenade and then gun with this boom and then dust from the rafters would rain down for the next you know, 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> and it worried me a little when one of our guys had bought some flash paper and showed it to Tony and he acted like, I've never seen that before. It's like, you're going to strap a, 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 a four shotgun barrels with full loads onto the hip of some actor. And he's going to, it's probably going to knock his pelvis across the set, you know? Uh, <laughs> But anyway, and also the, they, there were tons of aliens that they they hacked out the, the Nolan and Dublin team for uh, uh, the uh, the escape sequence at the beginning. You barely only seen one of the guards uh, in, in the final film, and uh, but they were doing these things. They got a bunch of of unpainted Don Post masks because John Nolan had worked for Don Post, and I, I think. It was some alien head and metaluna of mutant claws, and the the arms were extended out of this mannequin, and so they put a like a, a jumpsuit coveralls thing on him, and then they got, um, well, first of all, uh, you know, I said, well, look, John, I'm really busy working for the brothers here, but if you need any help on foam fabrication for these aliens, you know, I could. He says, ah, oh, no, 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 no. I've got this uh, uh, a French foam expert that worked with me on Dune. 
And first, what he didn't realize is uh, it was uh, Frederic Galen, who I'd gone out with a few times. And he hired her mainly because she was cute, French, <laughs> very tight jeans, and walked around the studio with her high heels clicking. <laughs> and I knew Frederica had been you know, part of the assembly line, and a bunch of friends of mine did it too, were building the still suits for Dune, which, well, it was done over at Don Post. And, but Frederic said, I do not like doing phone, phone work. It is, it is shit work. I do not like it. And I go, okay, she's the French phone expert you're bringing in. And, <laughs> and she basically told that to John when he called her. He says, oh, no, 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 I've got this guy working for me, John Criswell. He's a whiz at phone, you know, which sadly John was not. This was early in John's career. Of course, now he's head of, animatronics over at Henson, but, and I worked with him many times over at Beekler's, but, you know, John didn't have a clue about foam. So basically <laughs> they had this mannequin there with his rubber hands and rubber head and this pile of, it wasn't even foam. It was fiber fill, you know, like sheets of batting, like you like quilts from, <laughs> and they started just gluing it onto this mannequin and building up and building up. And I swear to God, it went over the top of the head, spanned to the ex uh, the extended wrists, and then down to the bottom. It looked like this giant puff ball. But John was working on one side, and Freddie was working on the other. They basically stood there for about half an hour, staring at each other, waiting for the other one to take the lead, and nobody <laughs> did. So they just dove in. And uh, the Nolan team kept incredibly short hours there you know i think we were getting there at seven or eight a.m they would roll in at nine and then four o'clock in the afternoon come around well another day another dollar see you guys and they'd walk out <laughs> and, and uh, the brothers were going and they got another studio that they're built actually building this stuff at <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so we walked up and they left that day. We walked over to the what looked like I, I think I called her Jaja, the incredible cloud creature, this big puff ball. <laughs> and of course, one of the things I noticed is they hadn't allowed for any way to access the zipper on the jumpsuit. So, you know, they basically built this on this mannequin and it wasn't going to go off <laughs> without some major hacking and slashing. But uh, I'm going, you know. You know, Frederic's had kind of almost a artsy style of swirls and so forth on her side, and John was a little bit more pragmatic, but they, they, each side was different. So look at this, look at that side, and, and Stephen Kiera said, "I think it's a contest." <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, none, I, I actually John Criswell later told me he said, uh, "I said, well, what happened to the cloud creature?" You know, he said, uh, he said. I took that off the truck and threw it underneath. I didn't even take it on the set. <laughs> well, um, if you uh, obviously you built the the large critter for the end of um, right. critters, now you kind of did the same thing with Ghoulies too. Um, I'm, I'm I'm assuming was was there any techniques you learned from the the Kyoto's that you kind of moved on to Ghoulies too? Actually, I kind of well, the, my very first job in Hollywood was working at the Berman Studio on Space Hunter: The Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, and the first things we did for that are the big fat mutants. And you know, I was hired along with another friend of mine from Florida, Mark Tyler, uh, because we had 
done foam fabrication. I'd done a lot of it in Florida. Uh, I was unfamiliar with the cer certain types of foam and adhesives that were commonly used in Hollywood. So, but, you know, I had, a, you know, I, I, I was decent at the time at doing that. So, and actually I more or less supervised the big ghoul uh, on the Ghoulies 2. Uh, uh, my friend Lynette, uh, she was Johnson at the time. Now her name is Eklund. Uh, uh, she, uh, that was the first time she built a monster. I'd worked with her on a, a kid show pilot where we were doing, you know, more mascot type characters, cartoon characters. But she, that was her first creature. And um, Joe Dolanich sculpted the feet, uh, the hands, and the head, but the whole rest of the body was foam fabricated. Now, Beekler's original idea, at least he claimed, was that they were going to build oversized sets. So this was going to be a way you'd actually see the fish ghoulie running around. And, you know, of course, they wound, of course, they wound up using David Allen, you know, doing some stop motion shots. Uh, and there they actually, I guess, cast those uh, stop motion puppets from the moles that our puppets were from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because let's face it, the big ghoul looks like the fish ghoulie, but it's not an exact match for the fish ghoulie because of the uh, proportions. So, but anyway, uh, I knew that they weren't going to spend the money to build you know oversized sets so you know i just nodded and said yep yep sure john whatever <laughs> and uh, then they wound up adding putting that in as the thing that they conjure to kill you know the real ghoulies at the end and unfortunately uh albert band who w was kind of was a hoot he was you know this great old guy really you know like go go be real friendly when to your face hi pal and then he'd walk out the door and he'd turn around and say, schmuck. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, he was an old guy. He wore his pants up to about here, you know. <laughs> um, you know, but he did not want um, to do it, have anything to do with the puppets and effects. So they hired a second unit, uh, a second unit director, Bill Cronick whose credits were uh, included uh, the Dalarentis Kong and Flash Gordon. Mm. And, you know, he'd spend like an entire day having the shadow of a gorilla cross in front of a church, you know. Uh, so he was completely clueless about doing any kind of puppet effects. And he, I remember him saying to me, well, these ghoulies, they, they don't do much, do they? And it's like, well, they're puppets. You have to make them do stuff. You know, they don't do it on their own. And he goes, well, well, you know, don't they even walk? And I said, did you see Gremlins? Yeah, that had a slightly bigger budget than this does. And uh, they had a couple of marionette shots, which are pretty much obviously marionettes. And then they had the big stop motion shot, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and they said, but yeah, no, they don't walk. You know, and I, you know, I was seeing storyboards where the rat ghoulie jumps off the carousel down to the ground, runs across the fairground, hops up on the Mazinga thing. And it's like, yeah, yeah, we, we're, yeah, we're sure we're going to do that. <laughs> the one thing that was good about Chronic being so slow, you know, in his mental processes is that we came, would come up with some rather cool, cool things. And John Criswell who was on the show and he actually did some stunt puppeteering. 
it was a, a, a he we some they they had the grups work on a rig that's strapped underneath the tilt a whirl and he was puppeteering the ghoulie on the ride that was actually whirling around you know, with the the ghoulies pulling the bolt out that sends the car <laughs> flying and yeah so it was, it was great um um and let's see um but the thing was when uh, when he ran out of ideas uh, things to do with the puppets he would put either John Cri- John Criswell or Tom Flouts in the big ghoul suit and right. yeah he, that that he could figure out there's a guy walking around in a costume i, I he could get his head around that so uh, <laughs> you know so we uh, i don't know there's probably a whole other movie with the big ghoul running wandering around that carnival set which was actually built on a huge sound stage at the old Dino Chita studios mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, in Pomezia. And um, uh, literally the black, the black guard ship from Barbarella was sitting out on the back lot. <laughs> and that set from uh, uh, Red Sonia with a big stone hand that kind of teeter tottered. That was back there too. So, <laughs> and uh, act- actually uh, the, some of the building exteriors, uh, uh, including the breezeway between the soundstage and the office building, can be seen in Danger Diabolic. Oh, cool! It's quite the thing. And and the other thing that was cool is they ca- and it's just a sm- tiny little part, but the priest at the beginning that n- gets knocked into the uh, vat of acid, which every American garage has, uh, a <laughs> fifty-gallon drum acid. So uh, he, but it was Anthony Dawson uh, from uh, Dial In for Murder. He was uh, Professor Dent and Doctor No. He was the evil Marquis and uh, Curse of the Werewolf. You know, and of course, I you know, uh, as long before IMDb and all that stuff. So you know, but I, I actually had tea with him at the, the Cappuccino Bar at the studio. So you know. It's, it's, <laughs> Just pleasant. I don't know if he was hitting on me or what, but <laughs> I, I'd like to think he wasn't. Anyway, <laughs> but uh, oh, and also that was the first of two times I got to work with Royal Dano, who um, you know played the old uh, um, owner of the haunted house or Satan's Den, or the Italians would say Satin's Den. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, he uh, he was very cool, you know. Uh, I mean, so many character roles, you know, over the years. Seven Faces of Doctor Lau, and uh, he uh, he was also uh, the voice of Abraham Lincoln in the Hall of Presidents at Disneyland. Mm-hmm. And he had such a great voice, you know. He was re- was really good, and even though he was older, he could he still had it. Uh, <laughs> and but you know, very recently, I guess Disney changed. Um, Mr. Lincoln, so he's like waving his arms and doing a lot more dramatic gestures. I guess you know, he, I didn't know he was part Italian or because he was <laughs> around and they, they replaced his voice, which really pissed me off. But Royal was fun, and he, he uh, and he had worked with uh, uh, Albert, I think, way back on Face of Fire, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, so they were friends and um. So, so he was fun to work with. Carrie Remsen was a sweetheart. I, I actually uh, ran into her at uh, John Beekler's <clears throat> last year. Mm. Um, 
Uh, so, uh, and uh, I forget the name of the, the kid who plays the, the, the bad guy, you know, the new owner of the carnival. Oh. He, was, he was actually really, uh, really nice. And the uh, lead, Damon, was kind of a jerk. <laughs> but not the first <laughs> person to say that. And of course, Phil Fondacaro, he's, he, Carrie Remsen, and I uh, would go off on the weekends into Rome, and he would be wearing this huge fedora and sunglasses, you know, <laughs> and walking around, you know, I mean, we could, wouldn't have gotten stared at more if he'd had a trained bear walking alongside <laughs> us. Everybody was looking at us with it looked like this little gangster. Uh, and he actually, we were actually at some kind of like a street um, vendors and stuff like that. And he found a walking stick that broke down into three parts. And he goes, oh, great. And he bought it, took the middle part out, threw it away, and it was just the right size for him with the middle taken out. <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> So he was—he—he he, he was a lot of fun. He would come onto the sound stage, you know, first thing in the morning, and go volare, and then one of the some of the guys up in the right would go oh. <laughs> <laughs> but what 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 was interesting was to, another was the fact that uh, you know I mean they've been shooting the Empire films for a few years. At, at the Dina Chita Studios, and they had this huge Empire Studios sign, and, and Charlie was renting it. He didn't buy it; he was renting it uh, because Dino had to couldn't come back to Italy for tax reasons. So Dino built apparently an exact replica of Dina Chita in North Carolina. Uh, some friends of mine went there and they said, "My God, I thought we were in back in Pomezia, you know." But uh, um, so uh, probably up until the digital age, uh, all, all Italian films were shot MOS and post-dub. Even, mm. even uh, we were watching Italian television, even television was like that. It was very, very surrealistic because you could tell the voices are added in later. So uh, some of the crew was not uh, hit to this. And so, yeah, they're pounding on a set while they're about to roll a take. And like, <laughs> like just what? <laughs> it was fun. It was, um, you know, um, I wound up being kind of the, you know, because I was, I think, the only only um, a member of our effects crew that spoke English without a lot of slang. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> uh, some of the other guys, you know, was like, so that, that, that confused the Italians. So, and even then, sometime, uh, sometimes, you know, the... They wouldn't understand the intent behind, you know, what I was saying. You know, I'd have I'd have six guys, you know, uh, you know, in a Mongolian clusterfuck you know, under a trunk, you know, all trying to get the ghoulies to come out, and they'd have a, a rollout on the camera, and I would ask the AD, you know. Um, uh, you know, how long is it going to take? And he got very defensive. Like I was, I said, look, I don't care how long it takes. I just want to know if I've got enough time to, to pull these guys out from there and give them a break or, you know, hmm. so, you know, but gen generally communication was very good. When we went into Rome, there weren't as many people who spoke English, whereas there was a lot of people. We got spoiled by that at the studio and we were put up at, um, 
this seaside hotel in Torvionica, uh, the Corsetti Mari. And apparently that Corsetti's owned a whole chain of hotels all around Italy, but you know, a lot of them in Rome. But uh, apparently Romans would actually drive out to the beach just to dine at the restaurant we had there. And some days the hotel uh, was closed to the public, but we were, you know, they still would have uh, breakfast made for us and dinner and so forth. And we were in this big cavernous dining hall, you know, with uh, Madonna singing Holiday on the jukebox, which is, you know, uh, we figured it was at least a three-year lag before, like, American songs got <laughs> over there, you know. <laughs> you know, it was like, get last year's hits, you know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, excellent, excellent uh, food and so forth. So it was, um, it was nice. Of course, it was, uh, yeah, October, November, when I... Um, uh, when we were there, you know, I'd heard, you know, God, you know, the Crescetti is mean, summertime, champagne is flowing, there's wall-to-wall topless women out on the beach. <laughs> there wasn't a living soul out on the beach, you know, <laughs> right? Um, you know, shutters on the windows, you know, on some of the buildings. And, you know, like the, the hotel was practically abandoned, you know, it felt like, you know, um, you know, the Italian version of The Shining when we were there, you know, it's just kind of <laughs> kind of empty. But, uh, um, you know, it was it, it was cool. You know, I bet. Yeah. You know, I remember, you know, I brought a T-shirt, an orange T-shirt that had like a jack-o'-lantern face printed on it. And I decided to wear it on Halloween, which I think was, was during a work day there and nobody i mean i got a few looks but nobody actually said anything to me and i thought hmm. and finally uh one of the cameramen goes oh halloween and i go mm-hmm. yes he goes is a film by john carpenter right and i said yeah that's got close enough okay <laughs> <laughs> was this were you do were you, i mean you obviously went across the Rome. were you working on a spellcaster at the same time as goodies too was that kind of quite Spell, close spellcaster uh, the spellcaster started before Ghoulies. I, I we pretty much segues. I, I was asked to be the shop supervisor at that time because some of their uh, some of John's key people went off to do uh, Texas, Texas Chainsaw Massacre two, and so I was there. And so I uh, did things for spellcaster. I I actually foam fabricated the back of the lion chair. The, the lion face was cast in foam latex, but that they it need it was, was supposed to look like wood, but it had to bend down towards her. And so, you know, I fabricated that. I fabricated the body of the Hound of Hell. Almost got in a brawl with the director over it uh, because, <laughs> um, you know, basically we were yeah it was a puppet in the close ups and then it was you know mask on a dog you know mm-hmm. and i mean uh, and Beekler asked me to sit in on this meeting because he hated this Rafael Zelensky a lot <laughs> and because he was you know i think he thought he was Roman Polanski but had the you know uh, less talent than Al Adamson so mm-hmm. uh, you know but he was talking all of this uh uh you know, uh, artsy things. And he says, and now in this scene, the hound of hell comes flying down the hallway with flames coming out of his nose. And I go, wait a second. It's a dog in a mask in the wide shots. He doesn't fly. You know, not going <laughs> to fly 
a live dog down a hallway <laughs> and know there aren't going to be flames coming out. <laughs> and then there was this bit where um, uh, this character, you know, who's overeating, turn is all of a sudden starts uh, turning into a pig. And then the fight was more supposed to be more like a wild boar, but they couldn't get a wild boar. You know, Giovanni Natalucci, who had worked on Caligula, had, was the art director who was there, and he was having trouble with Raphael uh, as well. And um, uh, but so Raphael, uh, he says, well, I don't know. Giovanni says, oh, well, well, we'll paint a pig, you know, try to make him look more like a boar and so forth. And then Raphael goes, and then we shoot him. We shoot him for real. We kill him. And then we cook him and feed him to the actors. And we're just there like, you're going to kill a live animal on camera? You know, I, I said, why the hell would anybody in the right mind shoot a pig in the hallway? I was yelling. People out in the shop heard me yelling through the wall. And Beekler was chuckling to himself because I was the one who was supposed to keep him from blowing up. But <laughs> later on, when I got to Italy on Ghoulies 2, Giovanni Natalucci treated me so nicely, and then I realized it was because I yelled at Zelensky <laughs> in that meeting. <laughs> Shoot a pig. Beekler ended up doing the majority of the directing, I think, towards the end of the shoot, right? Did they did they get rid of the... Uh... Yeah. yeah, they... Well, oh, this was a weird thing. They flew John out and uh, because uh, second unit was falling behind because of Bill Cronick. And, you know, he obviously he'd been there for Troll and other stuff. So he was pretty well known at the uh, studio. Um, and... He goes, oh, what do you think? Do you think I, uh, I should uh, take over second unit? And, and we're all going, no, John. No, no, no. No. If it doesn't turn out well, you're going to get the blame for it. Uh, uh, if, if it turns out great, Bill Cronick will get the credit for it. Yeah, 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 it's a lose-lose situation. Don't do it. Next morning, John shows up on set with his booming voice. But here's the thing. They did not fire Bill Cronick. He was there, too. Mm -hmm. But John could out-talk him about uh, he's like, oh, we'll go over there and do this and do that, and then chronically he's sitting going, and and a little to the left, you know, and uh, <laughs> you know anybody that does uh, that doesn't know set pro protocol wouldn't get it to begin with, but it's like you know th there's one director on 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 a set and. Uh, and what? So somebody showed up later in the morning and said, uh, "Dove la regista? Where is the director?" And it's a, that's a kind of hard question to answer. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, and, and John, you know, who'd been over there a few times, you know, uh, you know, had not uh, picked up any Italian. You know, he would uh, uh, put A's and O's on the ends of English words and say, "Excuse me." Io requiro uno, and he loses it at the end. The C stand, you know? <laughs> and, and I remember one of the times walking by me, just muttering, "Io requiro." <laughs> well, you you did mention um uh, horror workout, and uh, mm. I was now was that conceived on the set of Nightmare Sisters? I know you and Lene had like a bit of a 
it was some she was hitting someone with a hammer or something like that and it, it was, it was actually a, a murder weapon and they were doing ah. some pickups and i dropped by to visit because uh, dave dakota and i are friends and you know she was having to hit a mark so she, it was a rubber sledgehammer it was still about the same size as she was mm. and she's gone up and down very mechanically and i said this looks like an exercise routine and i literally blurted out we should do a quickly horror workout. And the whole place just busted up laughing. <laughs> and then as the laughter was dying down, you know, I was saying this thinking, you know, it, this, that's not such a bad idea. <laughs> and so, you know, I came up with it quickly. Um, Ruth Landers, who was, you know, uh, behind the uh, uh, Ghostwriter project. She put some money in. Dave put some money in. Um, we rented uh, beta cam equipment that was we were having constant problems with the entire weekend. And they said, oh, no, we've got, you know, 24 uh, seven uh, tech support. Kept calling and calling and calling. <laughs> sir, you know, but uh, we were uh, uh, was shooting the jogging sequence, which was originally the whole sequence was supposed to take place uh, next to the graveyard uh, with the zombie scene. But uh, um we were having a slow start because our effects makeup artist was late. Again, no cell phones back then. So it's kind of like send somebody uh, to his house and pound on his door until he answers, you know. Um, so we're running late. Some genius had ordered pizza for lunch. We were out there in the blazing sun eating pizza. Mm. I said, oh, this is, this is great. And then I looked down the hill and winding up the road was not one, not two, but three fire trucks and i go oh shit we had gotten permission to use the road but we couldn't find who owned the property so we were basically stealing mm -hmm. and linnea jumped out and go and starts talking to the the uh the one of the firemen is oh we're, we're we're doing a student film here and they started making up names of professors <laughs> that are, 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 are film school and all that and meanwhile i said okay we've got this graveyard we can't you know we haven't shot a, a frame so we we banged out the, the the zombies getting up out of the ground thankfully the grass was long so we didn't even have to try to fake bury them we just kind of had them coming up grass. <laughs> And uh, we were shooting and shooting. I said, every take we finish, hide it somewhere just in case, you know, they're going to. And of course, uh, uh, the uh, problem was because Linnea had quite a big following at the time uh, when, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know if they continue to believe that it was a student film when Entertainment Tonight showed up. <laughs> <laughs> they were kind. I, I said, I, I, I hope you don't talk about this you know, what's going on right this moment. And they said, ah, uh, uh, they were good. And, and, and uh, I think it was Mick Garris and Bill Malone visited the set too. So mm. it's like, okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> just average student film. Uh, so I, yeah, but, but in the meantime, I said, well, we got the first part where the zombies come out and, uh, but what, what are we going to do? And I, I, we'd uh, used uh, her parents' house as base camp, and it had a big swimming pool in the backyard. So I said, okay, they chase her back to her house. You know, uh, we've got another location that was going to be the house for day two. But I said, well, we, would, uh, you know, we don't, won't shoot towards the house. We'll just shoot the pool area. And so she'll do the zombie size out by the pool. And... I remember we're, we're like, uh, yeah, my AD says, okay, I think, uh, uh, I think it's time we leave, you know, before they start 
you know, getting aggressive. So we're packing up the stuff and the guy's about to put the camera in the trunk of the car. I said, wait a minute, Lene, jog down that road. And then I grabbed the gun, you, 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 go after her, go after her. And we shot, you know, <laughs> shot going away from the camera. And I said, okay, get back in the car. And we set it up, but literally the sun was going down and it started casting a major shadow across the pool and even across the the people, uh, you know, the actors. And uh, I realized uh, Cynthia Garris, Nick Garris's wife, who's who's appeared in some of his films, lovely person, used to be an aerobics instructor. So she, you know, volunteered to help coach uh, and do do out the routines for the thing. And I realized quickly when we were on the master shot of Linnea in the center and all the zombies beside her, Linnea kept falling out of sync. And I thought, well, you know, she's a dancer. She's done all sorts of things, you know, involving dance. And she said, I never, I, 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 I was cut from the cheerleading squad because I couldn't keep in sync with the other girls. And I'm going, oh, <laughs> now you know. <laughs> so basically I said, you know, everybody follow Cynthia, who was by the camera on the opposite side of the pool. And, and, and so the wide shots, it was like, we used every last frame until Linnea started fucking up. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then we got, so we singles of her and we didn't have the zombies. But by the time we got to the zombie singles, we were literally pulling lights off the truck to light night for day because it got so dark. And so, and then, um, and then the next day we had audio problems for a while that we didn't know. So we had to go back and reshoot. Linnea's whole opening speech, you know, when she's lying in front of the fireplace. Um, one of the uh, one of the girls from uh, the of the uh, slumber party did not show up. Apparently, she'd gone to the production office. Uh, she was a student from out of out of state, so she wasn't that familiar with the place. Uh, and long before GPSs existed. And so she looked and, and, and we gave out the um, production sheet for both days. So she went, she, she followed the map out to the day one location when she was supposed to be going to the day two. Of. And of course, no cell phones. We kept calling a roommate. Said, she left hours ago. I don't know why she's not there. You know, we're like, oh God. And finally, Apparently, the, apparently she ran out of gas on the road. You know, somebody they 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 somebody rescued her, but apparently she was sobbing and hysterical. I never heard from her ever again. <laughs> Talked to the roommate who told us what had happened. Uh, I said, "Well, you look, we're running behind schedule, so she could still get here and be in the show." She said, "Oh no, you 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 don't want her in the shape she's in." <laughs> <laughs> and then Cynthia Garris came over to me and said, "Ken." I'll do the part, but I'm 40 years old. And I said, you don't look a day over 20. You know? <laughs> get, 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 get in some nightgown or something. And one thing that I, uh, I learned at the expense of the cast uh, was that if you're shooting something with like a dance or exercise routine, use more than one damn camera. <laughs> but we only had one damn camera, so therefore these girls had to repeat it. And I, I think towards the end of the routine, which we basically shot in sequence, that uh, 
uh, you could see visible looks of pain on their face. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it it was it was kind of a textbook, and then we had all sorts of audio post problems with it. But you know, so again, you know, that was linear video versus you know the new magic of digital. So. I was so happy when I found out that all so many of the problems we'd had on that pr- project were not didn't exist on on uh, digital film. Ah, uh, right. okay. <laughs> well, the fire department thing probably still would have happened. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I uh, I also need to just mention, um, uh, you know, obviously you, you worked on a bunch of Puppet Master movies as well as conceiving the original story and paul's a big puppet master fan yeah. mm-hmm. um what what was it was was that something that you worked with um with david schmola is in did you conceive this together or was this something that you were given like by charlie band and they gave you a poster and said come up with a <laughs> yeah yeah he uh charlie had a laundry list of puppets uh but that was about it you know and uh you know, I think, you know, had sort of an idea that uh, Toulon was running from the Nazis and all that. I had a much more exciting opening plan that I they were um, that the Nazis uh, burst into his room, grab him, taking him at gunpoint down to their car. And the Watcher puppet, which was originally called Skull, there wasn't a jester. Hmm. was watching them the whole time, you know, uh, and, uh, you, know, he, you know, you'd seen him hide the trunk with the puppets before they got there. And so he's in the back seat between the two Nazis and they look down and he's got a grenade with a pin pulled and they go for the doors and the car explodes. <laughs> but, and I remember literally arguing with Debbie Dion. He says, no, 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 it's going to be more heroic if he shoots himself. Well, you know, suicide is kind of cowardly in the first place. In the second place, isn't it more heroic if he not only, you know, uh, dies to protect his secret, but he takes out the bad guys with him? Mm-hmm. Get that pastor. <laughs> Get that pastor. And, you know, Charlie was all, you know, so brimming with ideas. Uh, um, you know, I mean, he'd look over, you know, something I read and he says, uh, I don't like the name Miriam. Uh, change it to Meredith or something. You know, it was that, like, oh wow, that's going to really, really impact the film. Uh, but uh, the first script had uh, uh, Six Shooter and Cyclops in it. Yeah, oh. so I, I did a full draft. I didn't just come up with a story. Mm-hmm. And you know, um, you know, and and I there was a little bit of a hint of a possibility of directing it. So. You know, I, I, you know, I was really pulling out the stops on it, and Charlie didn't give me any restrictions per se. The funny thing, and I've told this story before, but it's it's always great. You know, when he first was telling me about his idea, which is basically a title and some puppets, he goes, "Okay, now the killers in this film are going to be really small, like 15 inches tall." He said, "Yeah," I said, "Oh, you mean like ghoulies?" And and he said, "No, no, no, they're not alive. They're carved out of wood." I go, "Oh, you mean like dolls?" And he said, "No, no, no, it's they're not dolls. They're puppets." I go, "Oh, okay." <laughs> you know, and I was I was I was pulling his leg because he, you know not only is he keeps mining the same well over and over again, you know, for, uh, you know, little, little killer creatures. Uh, they could be dolls, <laughs> they could be puppets, they could be demons, you know, but they're, they're all going to be little. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I mean, I, the thing I've, all, I, I, I've, I've always said, 
in interviews, and and I mean it, you know. I mean, there was a lot changed from my script, you know. I mean, the setting was the same, but the uh, I had a group of you know witches and satanists, and he they changed them into a group of parapsychologists. But Charlie mm. wanted a bondage scene, which made sense with witches and sadists and that sort of thing. Didn't make a lot of sense of you know parapsychologists tying each other <laughs> to the bed, you know, <laughs> but uh, had to have that. But, uh, you know, I mean, I had a great thing where uh, the leech woman had a, a clear glass body and she uh, uh, stuck her like syringe like tongue into a guy's neck. And her, you see the blood started filling up in her body. The guy wakes up and panics, and grabs her and trying to get him off of her. He snaps her in two and blood goes everywhere. He, he collapses. <laughs> bleeding out and you see just her upper part crawling across the floor <laughs> the door leaving a trail of blood <laughs> no yeah it's like no miss leech oh she spits leeches on people and so that's kind of <laughs> it but it's not going to kill anybody you know? <laughs> she spits leeches on people you know and uh, and then six shooter we had a scene where one one of these uh uh which is uh drove a drove a motorcycle and was trying to run down uh, Six Shooter out in front of the hotel, and Six Shooter plants several shots right in the faceplate, and the guy goes careening off the cliff, which there wasn't one because it was matte painting. So that that <laughs> scene that never made it, you know, I basically said, I think, you know, they, they, they kind of toned it down a little bit. I think everybody in the movie dies in their sleep. yeah have you still got the script i mean is it something that you know i do um i and and i actually that's the only thing a puppet master that's mine that i um you know i sell copies at uh conventions and so forth oh cool and actually those are in my warehouse uh i'm in storage room out out in la but i'll I'll bring some back i was i was gonna say while you were talking about puppet master did you have any idea it was going to turn into such a huge kind of franchise or did, did Charlie envision Oh, oh no idea. And of course, no idea that I was going to get completely screwed on it. You know, yeah. I barely got my final payment, but you know, and, uh, uh, it turned out because Schmoller was in the guild, they arbitrated it. And I got the shared story by credit with, uh, Charlie, which I was mm-hmm. fine with, but then, you know, it, it uh, uh, basically, because he kind of pulled a fast one without going into the long, long story, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I was still not eligible for guild membership. I was not eligible for residuals, which I should have gotten. And even on that uh, new Puppet Master thing that Charlie didn't do, mm-hmm. he licensed the rights for $100,000, and I didn't even get a, a sequel payment. Wow. No, I'm, you're, you're, I'm sure. Do you get no. a credit at all? I'm sure you got I, a credit. I should have credit on that one. I have yeah. not gotten the credit on any of the Charlie produced Puppet Master sequels. Ugh. Not yeah. a one. It really pissed him off, you know. That I, uh, um, you know, I, I, the guild did try to get me a little money out of them, and it wasn't much. But I, I love the fact that. They they forced him to <laughs> to write me a check, and so that was that was some satisfaction. But it's yeah. you know uh, you know uh, it, it, uh, unfortunately 
I had probably the least to do with Puppet Master than I have with any of the other films I wrote. Right. And yet, of course, you know, it winds up being the most famous. I And, you know, I didn't even realize that until it was like the early 90s. And I had been asked to uh, be a, a guest at some uh, casting um, um, seminar and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there were uh, these girls that were like the Canadian equivalent of the Barbizon modeling school, you know, mm-hmm. cute, but you know, not much substance, but then all, all of a sudden they're coming in, oh my God, we love Puppet Master. It's one of our favorite movies. And I'm going, really? You know, and, and it, it kind of occurred to me that, you know, just like I grew up as a fan of, 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 of different movies and so forth, you know, that all of a sudden something I had done is, you know, um, you know, getting fandom. But like I say, I, I, as far as the popularity, I the credit I give is to David Allen for designing mm-hmm creating the puppets originally because mm. that's what the audience loves they yeah. don't care about the characters they don't care about the stories you know uh they don't care how fucking cheap <laughs> the movie <laughs> you know they uh, you know they just love the puppets and i had hoped that when you know charlie licensed it to some place someone else that uh you know i would i would get vindicated and so forth but you know let me reshaft me again Oh, that's not good. Yeah, that's nice. Nice. <clears throat> I, did, I did have a question about uh, Carnosaur. Okay, because you, you did you did the you you sculpted you did right you sculpted the the main Carnosaur the, the dinosaur. Uh, well, there uh, there the majority of the shots of the T Rex are 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 puppets mm-hmm. with done with forced perspective foreground miniatures and that sort of stuff. That was another thing that Tony Dublin uh, worked on. Yeah. Uh, but I, I was, and I was. They, there were dinosaur suits. They, they did use, uh, um, use one. It wasn't a raptor. It was Dino, Dionysus. No, no. Anyway, uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> well, we did do a T Rex suit, which you know was terrible. They, uh, uh, they had sculpted a head and legs out of you know, polyfoam and latex and it weighed mm-hmm. a ton, you know, it was like a crate full of automats, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, and I had to fabricate, you know, uh, the body uh, and the tails for it. And while I was working on that stuff, uh, John Beekler came to me and says, could you fa- possibly fabricate a full-size head? Of the T-Rex, I said, well, you know, a friend of mine had had bid on Jurassic Park many years back. And, you know, we Steve Sleep and I fabricated a a big T-Rex head. And then he seemed contented with that answer. So he walked back to his office an hour or two later. He'd come back. Would it be uh, possible to fabricate a leg or a tail? I said, John, you directed some of the new Land of the Lost episodes. I fabricated a huge tail for that and a brontosaurus head. this and that went back to his office and then came back and said could you possibly tie all these things together and i said okay what you're talking about john is a head-to-toe tail life-size t-rex <laughs> yes could you do it i said well we'll have to have some kind of framework in it and you're gonna have to get one of the mechanics guys to help but i think i can do it you know i i, I was fully honest with it i said mm-hmm. i never done this before but of this size 
And so we made pat. I made patterns off the um, um, the puppet sculpt, and then we projected them up and cut them out of one inch thick uh, mini cell foam, which is really dense. It's not floppy like you know, like upholstery foam. And I mean, the stuff when you put it into compound curves and so forth, especially at one inch thick, which I, I think that's the one and only time I've ever used foam that thick well you know made this huge shell and so there was a very minimal structure inside of it and for transportation we designed the legs and the tail to come off and there was like an a-frame thing uh where the tail and the two legs connected so that way it wouldn't you know collapse um and actually in the idea of transporting it when we took the legs and tail off with a John Crawford had invented this rig where it pinned into the where the hips were, and you could rock it down and roll it. So they said, we can make a giant puppet of this, because really <laughs> the only movement was from the neck up. So if you can have this thing come down and bite someone or something like that, I said, that's great, you know. And um, so it took it took quite a few weeks to build, and but I mean, like I say, the shell of the leg, which was like eight or nine feet long, I could hold up over my head with one arm, you know. <laughs> uh, so it's super lightweight, but I said, the way we've had to put the metal structure in this, if this thing does ever fall over, that metal structure is going to come loose and, you know, we're screwed. Thankfully, that never happened. Of course, Roger, while we're using it in my four other movies well in dinosaur island uh the fred mm -hmm. Olin by jim renorski thing and actually on my uh, effects reel i've used the clip from that rather than yeah. carnosaur which mm -hmm. you know i thought was i didn't think it was a good movie at all it wasn't it wasn't fun it was just trying to take itself too seriously yeah. of course it was an entire an entirely a ripoff of aliens but uh mm -hmm. i think the second one was more entertaining at least yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, I know it's been used in a lot of films. So I was wondering if you got credit for each of those or if it was just the you got told it was for Carnosaur and that was it. Yeah, I, they, they, uh, I think Roger didn't want to call too much attention to the fact that he was recycling. Yeah. <laughs> but the, uh, a funny thing happened is uh, when we finally stood it up, and like I said, this is the first time doing it, and I don't know where my calculations went off. When we stood it up, and we dropped the tape measure, it was 14 and a half feet tall. It was supposed to be 16 feet. And I go, oops, we're a little short here. And uh, I think, I said, well, you know, Roger's cheap, but I don't think he'll actually get up on the ladder and measure this thing. <laughs> so uh, a few days later, uh, someone called from Roger's stage, still the old Hammond Lumberyard, hmm. and um, they said, uh, how tall is the dinosaur, that dinosaur you're building? And, of course, you know, we stuck to our guns. Oh, it's 16 feet tall. You know, oh, geez, that might be a little bit of a problem just getting it on the stage. I don't suppose there's any way you could take six inches off of it. <laughs> I go, sure, <laughs> consider it done. You know, we just go right out and saw six inches. I like, like, <laughs> you know, I'm Then uh, short, a short time later, Roger called. I understand someone at uh, my stage authorized you to take six inches off the dinosaur. Am I to understand it is now 17 and a half feet tall? And no, 17 and a half feet tall. And of course, I immediately flashed on Beekler and Corman going back and forth. 
I want it to be 25 feet tall. No, it should be 12 feet tall. And they get, and so Beagle rocked out thinking it was 16, and Roger thought it was 18. I, you know, and I'm doing math in my head, like, uh, no, Mr. Corman, uh, the dinosaur was 16 feet tall, and we took six inches off, and now it's 15 and a half feet tall. Oh, my God. This is a catastrophe. We have a midget dinosaur. I'll be right over. <laughs> and I hang up, go out. To the, he's like, guys, let's get the son of a bitch on his hind legs now. <laughs> and, um, he walked in the shop, and his head was literally above the rafters in yeah in, in, in Dickler's studio. And Roger Roger walked in, looked up, and that he had that big grin spread across his face, which of course I knew to me, I'm going to make so much money. <laughs> 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 and he did. So, but that is how I, I guess, we got away with cheating Roger out of a foot and a half of dinosaur. <laughs> Hi, my name is Faye, and I'm a movie host in a little Virginia town. Uh, USA, obviously. Uh, you know, when you love ghoulies to the obsessive extent that I do, I don't know if 30 seconds is really enough to convey that lifetime of joy. You know, it's probably not. So I'm just going to say how happy I am that there's this growing community and this amazing podcast. I'm so thankful for that, keeping it alive. So, um, yeah, ghoulies forever and uh, happy Halloween. Hi, I'm John Pinozzi, and I'm glad you're listening to the Duly Unflushed Halloween Special. Flush on, everyone. Well, uh, we're currently standing next to the dunk tank, ready to throw some balls. Uh, I believe the clown here, affectionately called Bozo, has been working at this carnival for nearly four decades, and is still going strong even after a tragic accident that left him with only one arm. Uh, we have him here with us now, Mr. Bozo. How has working the dunk tank changed in the time that you've been here? Well, I only catch half as many balls as I used to. <laughs> and, and although we're not here to dredge up bad memories, do you have any explanation as to what happened that day back in 87 when you lost your arm? No, I'm still stumped. Uh, thank you, Mr. Bozo. Uh, we'll let you get back to your spot, and I hope you don't lose the other arm tonight. I'm joking, of course. Um, thanks, pal. Well, we still have some really cool guests tonight, including Goonies Go to Colleges production designer Stephen Greenberg, and also live music from Fun Never Starts, as well as Arturo Gill. Wow, it's insane. I, I, I hope the sounds and smells of this place translate uh, through the mics we purchased last minute at Radio Shack, uh, because it really is crazy here tonight in Greenville. And we have so much more to pack in, but it is now time to give you an exclusive sneak peek of WRW TFWW's new release. Yes, and uh, as us Ghoulies fans are aware, WRW TFWW released the full original soundtrack to Ghoulies in 2020, and they are now following that up with the sequel score by Fuzzby Morse. It's Ghoulies 2! And now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you get to hear a specially selected track picked by us from the recently discovered soundtrack of Ghoulies 2. Uh, thank you for letting us play this track from the album, uh, Olivier. Uh, we've picked track 5 from side A of the record. Uh, this is a great example of Fuzzby's fun score. Enjoy.
Isn't that amazing to finally hear the actual raw score from Ghoulies 2? Well, I'll definitely be picking this one up. Ghoulies 2 by Fuzzby Morse will be available from WRWTFWW very, very soon. Uh, well, we have much more to come. But first, another extremely special guest, this time Ghoulies Go to College production designer, Stephen Greenberg. <laughs> right. Well, thanks so much for fitness in. I mean, uh, you're actually someone who I've been trying to track down for a long time. And uh, uh, I actually I looked online to see if uh, I could find any sort of uh, interviews with you existing, but I, I couldn't find anything. So I'm, I'm assuming mm. you don't do this that often. Uh, no, not very often. Although I recall um, when we were making the movie, there was this magazine. I don't know if it's still in publication, but it's like a horror science fiction fanzine. And they came out and did interviews, and I think I did a short interview. But this is before video, before phones, obviously. So it's kind of – I have no idea what happened to it. But they interviewed John and a couple of the actors. Um, that is a long time ago, by the way. You know, I, know. I, 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 I actually have a few pages from a magazine, uh, which it, it might be what you're talking about, because I know there wasn't, it wasn't anything in Fangori or anything like that. But I'll, no, no, no. I'll scan them and send them to you, and you can tell me if it's the right, the right, the right one. Mm -hmm. 
So um, this is good because obviously we get to learn about you fresh because yeah. uh, you you choose not to do this too often. But mm-hmm. um, because of which, can we can we cover a little bit more than Ghoulies? I'm kind of interested in how you got involved in the movie industry in the first place. Sure, uh, if you want to ask questions, or I, I think um, the first picture I worked on, and my son who's 15, um, he's just discovering these movies. It's called. Um, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, which is kind of a cult movie. Have you heard of that movie? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know you worked on that. Nice. <laughs> yeah. It was the Kyoto Brothers, and I, I lived in Santa Cruz, California, and they came and shot all the location stuff there. Um, so I worked on it about maybe a month, and I painted all of the interior sets uh, for the spaceship, which it was such a low budget and it was moving so fast that oftentimes the paint wasn't quite dry when they were ready to shoot it. So I was like the only onset painter. So everything you see in that movie that's painted, I painted it. It's all pastel colors. And then I believe when I eventually decided to move to Los Angeles, I contacted uh, the Kyoto brothers and they were still doing reshoots. So a couple of the insert shots um, with the clowns, I'm wearing a mask and it's, you know, it's kind of bizarre, but. That was my first sort of movie, I think. I think. Wow. You need to update your IMDb because it's not <laughs> on there. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so so where does um, – because you, 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 can, you can Google production designer and find out exactly – you know, try and figure out what you do as a whole. But where does production design and props and sets begin and end? You know, do you oversee everything? Yes. So everything that – that appears on camera goes through my office. You know, I approve it. Um, and, and a lot of times John Booth um, wanted to approve things also. So we would have meetings together because he was very articulate about what he wanted. Um, I, I believe that I sent you a uh, a sketch that I did of, of, of a toilet and he, um, he didn't have input in that, but he wanted to make it himself. So over the weekend in pre-production, he threw some clay together and he brought it on the set. And he was very proud of it and they cast it. I don't no idea what happened to it, of course, but he was very on hand. So he wanted to see what everything looked like. So, yes, uh, the production designer is in charge of everything, the entire look, the colors on the wall, um, the props, um, locations, um, costumes. I don't supervise the costumes but everything that happens that you see on the set i would look at and say yes that works or doesn't and those it's a collaboration wow yeah i mean that that's the sketch you sent me was was beautiful to see because there's literally nothing really existing from from the production into aside from a handful of uh set you know promotional photos um did did, did was that something that happened a lot i mean you said that it was pre-production but was it kind of flying by the seat of your pants in the sense of, oh, here you go, John, he's a designer, and he just goes and does it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> in that situation. But I was actually looking for, um, because at, at the end of the movie, they, we, um, we designed a T-shirt or a jacket or a prop or something, and I can't remember what it was because I was thinking, oh, I could find this thing and wear it, but I can't remember what it was. And I think John designed it. Like um, the second picture that i worked on was um i was a uh, an office person for lost boys you know that movie with um with yeah. peter sutherland because they came to santa cruz also at the end of that movie they gave us these denim jackets that said lost boys on the side and it's still like a valuable thing i wear that once in a while um nice must have been a t-shirt but i have no idea but i know john did it he was very very hands-on and 
And mm-hmm. after the movie, I, I, I ran into him like two or three times, um, I think at the California State Fair with his wife and his kids. And at that point, he was doing movies in South Africa. He was just, he was he was directing some science fiction movies. Um, mm. And then he passed away soon after, you know, pretty young age, I think. But he was yeah. a really sort of he, he was a very uh, uh, not an aggressive person, but he had a lot of personality. He was very present. He was very physical, mm. um, demonstrative, I guess you could say. Um, <laughs> well, you, you mentioned that toilet. Um, it actually went up for auction uh, not too long ago. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what it went for. Paul, do you remember what it went for? Uh, was it, it was about it was about two thousand. Well, it worked out about yeah. two thousand pounds, didn't it? Because we were yeah. trying to configure it into yeah. British pounds. That's amazing. Because um, yeah, when you do those movies and you make those things, or you, you're part of it, you don't really think about the future. You're just thinking about getting it made for that moment. Yeah. So I'm I'm really amazed when those artifacts sort of pop up, you know, and have a value to it because at the moment you do it yourself because you can't afford to to actually have it done professionally, you know. So, mm-hmm. but that toilet, we didn't have a big budget for for that kind of thing. In fact, I don't think it was even a budgeted item. That's why John did it, you know. Uh, so, okay. That's fascinating. <laughs> so did what I mean, do you remember what kind of budget you had for the movie and, and, and how it broke down? I think it was like a I wanna say it was like two to three million dollars. Mm-hmm. I think my budget was maybe a couple hundred thousand, maybe a little bit more. That entire um complex um with the apartment, the house and the the uh dormitory for the girls, that was all built on a stage. And John wanted to be able to have puppets come up through the floor. So everything was built on platforms, which that was at the last minute. So I had to actually go in and get more money to build the platform um, because he decided he was he wanted to have uh, trap doors everywhere. And he had, I, I think he used it once. So they were kind of pissed off at me and him because it was like an extra $20,000, you know, to build everything up like I think five feet or six feet so someone could get underneath and push the puppet up, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, I think that was the budget. That's my memory of it. Um, Ian Patterson tracked me down. He was the producer. I think I mentioned you should try to get in touch with him. He's a really, he's a great guy. You can find mm-hmm. him. Um, I don't know what he's doing now. He did Stranger Things for like three or four years. Um, I don't think he's doing it this season. Um, but he's really articulate. He wanted to be a director. Uh, at one point, we actually wrote a script together that was never made because I, I became a script writer after I was a production designer. Um, but he's someone you should really try to find because I thought he had owned the rights to Ghoulies, but evidently he didn't. I think he, he pursued the idea of owning the rights and then he sort of changed his mind. I think when the, when the, when the distribution deal fell through, he decided it wasn't worth it. I have no idea. So he tracked me down because when I, so when I first came to Los Angeles, I sent resumes everywhere. Uh, I got an interview with Roger Corman with a director named Larry Brand, um, who just passed away last year. Um, he wrote one of the Halloween movies later, but um, it was his first movie. Everybody on the crew was first time, so I'd never designed a movie in my life. And for some reason, I talked my way through the door. I lied. I bullshitted. <laughs> and uh, I did like, I don't know, six Corman movies in a row. Back then, you would... We had like three weeks pre-production. They would shoot it in two or three weeks. And while you were shooting one, they were prepping the next one. So you did like all these movies in a row. They were about two or $300,000 a piece. And they all went straight to video as far as I know. I think the first one maybe got 
a distribution deal. But in, in general, they were movies that um, were made in a house. He sold them, say they cost a million dollars, but they didn't. They cost two, three hundred thousand. Jim Wynorski, who directed, I think, the following Ghoulies, he was in that group at that time. So he did like, I don't know, 15, 20 movies for Roger. So I was I was sought out by Ian Patterson because I could work on a budget. Had you That's seen thought. any or, or were aware of the previous Goonies films or did you just, I mean, I suppose it wasn't no. relevant to your job, but no. <laughs> no never heard of it. Um, and I don't think I've actually seen any of them except for the third one. That's it. Mm. Yeah, well, um, it, you know, it's a standalone movie. I didn't know whether or not John would have re- referenced anything or, uh, but no, I suppose you didn't really need to. <laughs> well, yeah. usually in the interviews that I, I heard him, um, when he was answering that question, well, why'd you do this movie as a director? He goes, well, he wanted to make it a comedy. Mm. I'm not sure it's the kind of comedy that he, he envisioned because it's a little bit darker than that. It's got some nasty special effects. Of course, this is in the days before digital effects, so everything was live. So when, mm-hmm. when Marsha Wallace has, I think that, that's her name, had her, had her tongue pulled out, that was like an all day to rig, you know, this 20 foot long tongue gets pulled out of her mouth. <laughs> it's kind of graphic stuff. Um, do you remember anything that was, because uh, I know, I think it was Ian Patterson who wanted to kind of tone back some of that uh, sort of slapstick violence. Do you, do you remember anything that didn't make it into the final cut? Um, not that I know of. I, Ian actually, he directed a bunch of comedies. So I think he was actually, he'd like the slapstick. Um, he had, so even though he wasn't British, he was Canadian Swiss. So he had a certain kind of sense of humor. So, um Maybe that was sort of the tension between him and John. But in general, I thought they were happy with it. No, I can't really tell. It's <laughs> it, it never got seen by an audience in the theater, so I don't really know what nah. kind of reaction to it. <laughs> That's why I was I was sort of shocked. You know, Ghoulies has a cult. You know, you you I wouldn't call you guys a cult, but. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can call yourself a cult. Anymore. I don't mind. You look like a cult member. I was surprised. I I sort of thought, you know, um, I hadn't thought about it in years. So I was, I was curious when I got that email. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, well, I think it took a while to find you. So um, how did, I mean, what would you, how would you describe the look that you kind of came upon for Ghoulies then? I mean, is it something that you walk in and say, John, this is my plan. This is how I think it should look. Or is it, is it a question of a, uh, you know, both of you coming up with, how to approach it? Well, I also have to include Ian in the discussion because he was always there and we talked about the look of it. But I always envisioned, because they were puppets, that the set should be re- pretty dark. And that was kind of controversial. John wasn't really happy about that. He said, no, I want to see everything. And I said, well, the puppets are going to show up better if you have a dark background, especially that bathroom. I think it's almost all black or you know, yeah. dark green. Yeah, yeah. And so the, the movie, with the exception of, I believe, the... Um, the, uh, the house where the girls live, everything was pretty dark. And the sets were purposely done that way. So when the ghoulies popped up, they could light them from the foreground and they would show up. You know? So I was envisioning it in sort of an animated way. And although it was before its time, I wanted to have stuff on the wall that be, that came alive, that were animated. This is before digital stuff. You, you couldn't really do it. So if you look real carefully, you can see gargoyles and visions of ghoulies in the background yeah. that I said, you know, you could you could make those in the puppets and do something, but it, it never really occurred. But those images are still there if you look carefully. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's a there's a lot of gargoyle stuff aside from yeah. the toilet going on throughout the whole picture. I mean, even books and little things in Ragnar's office and stuff. 
And also, as I was going to ask you then, would you kind of answer the question, but later in the movie, all the pictures on the wall start kind of doing this kind of Dr. Caligari tilt. Everything kind of goes askew. That was a cheap version of being able to do animated stuff because they couldn't really do it. Actually, one of those paintings to come alive, you know, and to sort of start moving in the background. But it was just it was a little bit before its time in terms of, you know, they had, didn't have a budget for that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So so the pictures had wires on them and they had people behind the walls moving stuff around. Yeah. He had a he had a great crew. It was pretty big. Um, I think there were like 20, 20 people involved. That were always around and every morning you'd come in and there would be, you know, they'd be repairing the ghoulies who got damaged in the previous day's shoot. Things always happen. Things fall apart. Um, they're always super gluing in. That was like a new, I mean, it's hard to, to realize now, but super glue was a new invention. You could glue something <laughs> stick right away before you had to like wire it, you know, so. Was, uh, were you responsible for putting the picture of John Beekler behind the door in the, uh, <laughs> In the Beta's house. That <laughs> no, was a long time yeah. ago. But... <laughs> Maybe that was his suggestion, but I think we talked about it. Um, also, I don't know if you noticed, but there's a poster from Invasion and the Body Snatchers somewhere in the movie. I think it's on the on the campus that we shot at UCLA, which is University mm-hmm. of California, LA. All that exterior stuff. There's there's a poster on the wall in the background um, in the scene with um, Kevin McCarthy. And he signed it, and I have that somewhere signed. Uh, oh wow! <laughs> but there are little things like that. You know, yeah, there seems to be lots of Easter eggs hidden around because there's just so much going on. It's such a lively background in the yeah. walls. That classic. was more for fun. I don't know if it was on purpose, but he just said, yeah. well, "Let's just try that." Well, there's little, there's little things where like notice boards and. Isn't what's the one about the sand, Paul? Isn't they like cut free sand, bring a bucket or something? Yeah, like that yeah, yeah. It's, it's just really random. Calls. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was John. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> John would throw that stuff in. Yeah. Well, John, well, John seemed to do a lot of stuff, didn't he? Now he said to me that he'd uh, drew the whole comic book. Uh, I imagine over one weekend as well. Was was yeah. that something that again you had you, you had influence on, or was it something that John went off and did on his own? Um. I think he did something and I made some suggestions. Then he came back in and said, altered a little bit. Um, Do you have any uh, recollection why the, um, uh, during the credits, it says um, the producers wish to thank Tim Petrus for the prank crown. Do you have any recollection why Tim designed or built that as opposed to, you know, the crew? No. Who's Tim Petrus? I have no clue. No. It's just in the it's just in the end credits. Tim Petrus. I, I, I can't find out who he is. But I thought you might. Memory jogged, uh, you know. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't mean, well, I mean, I had a crew of about um, I don't know, fifty or sixty. So I have no memory. So it's the crown that uh, what's his name wears. Um, Skip uh, Evan. Yeah. 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 Skip Evan. Is it Skip Evans? Oh, well, Skip Skip Cart is the, the name, but mm-hmm. Evan McKenzie was the actor. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking at the credits and, and I can't remember who it was. Well, it was a friend of his or something. I think it was but one of those spontaneous things like, let's come up with this. And I don't mm. know. Can't it wasn't remember. like it wasn't something that kind of evolved because in the actual script, it describes it as a tin foil hat. But obviously it's not yeah. made of tin foil. I didn't know whether or not something happened late in the game to uh, up no. the coolness. Okay. I couldn't tell <laughs> <laughs> Did you get to choose like the the main frat house uh, from the movie? 
because um, the exterior, it, yes, yeah, the exterior one, yeah, because it was such like a unique old building. So, so it was a place um, on the USC campus, University of California. Yeah. Um, and um, it's in the row of frat houses, so it was a mm-hmm. real frat house. Yeah, yeah. You just saw the exterior. Um, yeah. And the girl runs out, I think, after the party. That's my memory of that. That's right. Yeah. She had something over her head. She had like a mask or a, a deer or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. The she's yeah, she's naked, in the cupboard. She know? comes out the cupboard in that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, the exterior is used quite a bit throughout the film. But we, we actually managed to track it down through screenshots, matching it up to find it in LA. Um, and on on that street, I know all the frat houses are on the same street that we used. But the that main one was just so it looks so out of place because it's, it's so much older. Yeah, I think that was on purpose. I mean, that that was that's kind of my main job. Like when I get hired as a designer, the first thing I do after meeting with the director is I go location scouting because they're casting during that time. So I I'll spend usually and in the case of uh, early days in L.A., I would spend seven days a week. So I had a location manager, but I would spend the weekends driving around. And usually that's when I would find stuff because they have ideas in their brain and it's hard to communicate. Well, this is kind of what I want. So yeah. sometimes you, you'll, you'll, you'll go to a location company and they'll show you all these pictures and they'll tell you what the price is. And usually it's too expensive. And so you go off and you find your own. So I think right. I just drove around. I went to USC because <laughs> I was familiar with it. And, and there it so was. you find the locations that kind of match and then you try to create an interior that works. You know? That's yeah. not always successful, but <laughs> most of the time it works. It, well, yeah. well, I say I, I mentioned. Well, we, we had a conversation earlier because I was looking at a couple of screenshots, and I, uh, we were trying to figure out exactly. Because obviously, you've got the exteriors that you shoot and you dress to match the interiors, but trying to actually figure out right, that's the end of that scene, and that's shot outside, and that's on the porch. But the, you know, like when you when you kind of like cheat, oh, let's call it that. When you put some background stuff that's either in or outside uh-huh. on a set, or is it. It's cheated. So on the set, I don't remember if there was a balcony or if there was some kind of porch, but I remember we sort of matched the foliage that was outside that door or, you know, but a lot of times, if you notice, especially in low budget movies, and I consider this kind of in that in that realm, you avoid the shots when you see any of the exterior. So they'll open the door in such a way that they'll step out and it's a clean cut. You know, there's no you don't have to tie those things together because they don't. Because it's it's a complicated lighting situation. It's never going to be that bright. Uh, nighttime is not really an issue, but if there's a porch light, you got to match those kind of things. But usually they try to avoid that. It's just easier you know, because if you've ever talked to me that worked on a low budget movie, there's never ever enough time. You're always like working, and those days were long. I think they were 14 hour days. We shot the interiors in Canoga Park, which is in the Valley of Los Angeles. It was in the summer. It was in the 90s, you know, signs up to 100. There's no air conditioning. We have fans in between shots, you know, but in general, it was, it was, and Kanoka Park became famous in that particular spot. That warehouse became like a porn industry staple because that's where they shot all the porn movies. They were in Kanoka Park. And that was one of the areas. That was later. Oh, let's see. Okay. So, how did your job change um, before, you know, in pre-production and during filming? I mean, obviously you plan everything, you, you pick everything, everything's, but but obviously on set, is it just a question of, right, we've got a problem, you have to figure it out? Yes, but usually because of schedules, I'm, let's say I do the first week or so sets, they're done, they're ready to go, but I'm working on the next situation. 
So a lot of times that things change all the time. So I may still be scouting for an exterior location for a thing that's going to happen in two weeks. And I don't know what that is yet. So a lot of times I'm off doing that. I have a set decorator who was in, in the case of that movie, I think the first decorator was replaced um, by Maggie Martin, who's kind of well-known now, but uh, I think it was like her second or third movie. And um, she will supervise. She'll make sure that all the props and the set dressing gets there on time and that's decorated correctly. So when I'm off, she's like my assistant. Um, but I'm usually doing the next thing. But I'm always there, on this, especially on the stage, and emergencies always happen. There's always stuff that goes wrong. Mm-hmm. The door you know, doesn't quite work, and there's always a construction person there and a standby painter. So if the, you know if a ghoulie hits the wall and they destroy it, we've got to fix it in between you know, setups. <laughs> and so it's nonstop. It's, like I said, it's 14-hour days. In my case, they were 20-hour days. I'd work seven days a week because if we're shooting Monday, I need the weekend to get ready for that stuff. So it's mm-hmm. physically demanding. Because it's not a uh, show, so everyone's doing seven tasks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, do you have any memories about the um, the the vehicles? I don't know why this popped in my head, but <laughs> the only vehicle that I remember having issues with was the um, was the golf cart. Yeah. The yeah. Cart, which. John made me paint it about five times. He was it, 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 it was described in the script as beige, and every time it wasn't beige enough. He wanted it completely innocuous, and we kept redoing it. And that was really frustrating because I figured I would show him all these shades, and he said, "Yep, that that one looks good." And then I would do it, and he goes, "No, it's too dark or it's too light." Um, but the guy who was the actor. He was a he was a really patient, wonderful guy. I think he passed away too. Some of those people aren't around yeah. anymore. Um, mm. um, he was really funny. He was like one of my favorite characters in the movie for some reason. <laughs> Just he was kind of goofy, you know. Oh, he did but a lot Ava of cool stuff. Too was, was a great person. I I became friends with her, and I would see her. Um, this is before she did CSI, but I would see her in my neighborhood all the time. And she she was a girlfriend of one of the. One of the ghoulie makers. I don't. I'm sure they're not together anymore. But they were an item during making the movie. I did speak to her a few years ago uh, for a book that's uh, kind of still kicking about the place. But um, well, shit. I mean, Eva said it was like um, uh, kind of like camp. She described this whole thing like you know, like you all kind of. There wasn't. I don't. I guess you didn't have that many trailers and that many you know different locations to hang out. And it kind of sounded more sort of grassroots. Mm-hmm. No, there were no trailers. We're all in this warehouse. And so the mm-hmm. warehouse had, you know, the, the floor of the warehouse and it's probably like, you know, uh, I don't know, 60 square feet. Can't remember the, the, the exact dimension, but there were offices along the edge. And so that was where I had an office and the prop master had an office and the actors had their rooms. But yeah, no, it, there are no trailers at all. There was no space for it. Well, so how much of each set did you build then? I mean, I guess as it's on the budget, you just built on just the bare minimum that you had to shoot, right? Nah, we built everything. It all, everything you had built- four walls. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Nah, everything was built four walls. I, I'm a, I was a firm believer, especially coming from Corman, where he said, no, there's not enough budget to build more than two walls. But the truth <laughs> is, I knew as an actor that if actors wanted to come into a room and do a scene, it's much better if they have an environment that they can look around and say, this is where I am. And mm-hmm. so even with Roger Corman, he, he was one of those characters 
And he's still alive. He's like, he's got to be 100 years old. <laughs> he was a kick. He would come on a Saturday and he, he would say, Stephen, let's walk around the sets. And so I, these movies were off. They're always in production. And he would he would say, why do you have four walls? And I said, well, because if we do this wall here, then, you know, we've got to have lights come in and there's no room for it. And he would say, take the wall away. And we would ignore it, you know. <laughs> um, in fact, to the point where he always assumed that because he had bought these Mitchell cameras, I don't know how many years ago in the fifties or something that weighed about a ton. And he said, we don't need to rent any cameras because I have these Mitchell cameras. So on Saturdays they would do a setup with the same setup, take out their rental cameras and put in these Mitchells as if we were shooting with it, but he didn't know the difference. <laughs> um, anyway, from that environment, actors were always complaining, you know, because, when, when I started, I didn't know anything. I would just build four walls because it was just common sense to me. Mm. So, yeah, all those sets were real. Wow. Wow. So you, so you got to build the um, the the desk in the classroom. It was like yeah. Ragnar's desk. I'd like the garden yeah, heads. That desk. Yeah. yeah. No, that was, yeah. I think we took a, an existing desk and, and added stuff to it. And, you know, How about the, uh, and... do you remember the ejector seat? There was like an ejector seat outside the campus. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It, all those gags and some much more. John would just kind of throw stuff out and say, tomorrow I want to do this. And so that's why we sometimes have to work all night. <laughs> and I don't know if all of it worked, you know. These days they would do it digitally, but mm-hmm. to physically make those things, it's much more complicated than people assume. It's not yeah. just you put us. You know, it's. I vaguely remember that chair, and I think that was a nightmare, too. <laughs> you try to do what the director wants, and a lot of times it's in it's in, um, it's in in concert with what the producer wants to pay for. Mm-hmm. So Ian was – he really supported John. You know, They disagreed about some things, but in general, anything John wanted, he was able to get to, you know, to a certain point. So he was a very supportive producer, I think. Did, did you – obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm curious whether or not – we, we're missing out on these amazing sets now because we maybe not all of them are photographed and you did the four walls. Did you, did you uh, ever take any photographs or anything of, of, of sets that you were working on? Yes. I've got those again, somewhere. No, no. <laughs> well, at least, at least they exist. Then. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, yeah, I have a book just... of all my, all my set photographs. Oh, wow. That's yeah. great. Cause especially back in amazing. those days, People didn't carry cameras around with them, not like they do now with their phones. And, and there's so little out there. Yeah, no, I, ha- I had an old biker mat, and that was kind of my go-to camera because you could drop it and throw it around and pick it in the rain and still work. And so I would take <laughs> pictures of every set I ever did, but then you have to print them, you know. And so I'd, um, it was expensive back then. Now you just you, people don't even print photographs, you know. I have a, I have a, a Canon 5D Mark Mark IV, and you know it's the best, one of the better cameras you can get. But I don't print anything, you know. It's all digital stuff. You know? From from like look from different the different things that you've worked on. I mean, obviously, I'm more aware of your genre stuff than anything else. But um, mm. is is there is there something more fun to work on? This is a terrible question. But like, let's <laughs> say you did like Mask of the Red Death with my one of my favorite actors, Patrick McNee. Like. Because he's English, obviously. Or, or is that more fun and to do something extravagant like that than it is to do, I don't know, what you did a Kevin McCarthy well, movie, The Courtyard? Mask of the Red Death was probably equally interesting because I think it was my second movie I ever designed. It's the same director, Larry mm-hmm. Bram, and he mm-hmm. wrote it because Roger wanted to do a remake of a poor movie. 
And um, again, that was all done on a stage with a few exteriors um, outside of Los Angeles, um, like the castle stuff and him riding on the horse. And, and I think that scene with Patrick McNee, when they're riding and there's fire everywhere, there was recently a fire. So all those trees burnt was, was part of the landscape. It was a location I found. Oh. I liked it because it was bleak. And then and before we shot it, it all burned. And I said, no, let's go back and still shoot it there because it still had that sort of... And that was all done on stage for Corman. Um, those budgets were maybe, God, I don't know, a third of the size of Ghoulies. So everything was, <laughs> it was really tight. And the costume designer, um, whose name I forget, but she's gone on. She did all the Star Trek movies and, and Fast and Furious. She was amazing. She was from um, Yugoslavia. And it was her first movie in Los Angeles. And I interviewed her. And I said, well, the... the uh, the trick is you've got to have all these these uh, costumes that can't have any red in them. And that was part of what the script said. So no costume could have red. They were all period from like what the 1400s, 1200s. Oh, so exactly. she went and made everything without. I didn't know that. I thought she had red in everything, but she everything was made from scratch. All the hats and everything. Um, and she was amazing. And it was she was trying to prove things. And and that it. There's a lot to be said for hiring people who you get along with. And whenever I would hire people, and in many cases, I was, especially in, in those years, I was part of who hired the costume designer because we had to work hand in hand. You hire people who have aspirations. They don't have to have all the experience in the world, but you see something in them, you get along, you see some of their sketches, you get sort of, in, you get ignited by something. Um, and it's a good way to hire a crew because sometimes a lot of the crew I would hire, they'd never worked on a movie before, but they wanted to. I don't know if it's as easy these days as it was back then, but there was a lot of people that you know wanted to work in the movie industry, didn't know a thing, but they had ambitions. Um, and Master there, Red Death was kind of like that. Patrick McNee, even though to him it was a low-budget movie, he acted like it was the real thing. He was a very, he was uh, really gracious and um, and warm. And the actor who played Prospero is that his name? He was mm. in. Uh, What's that movie, that TV series where he's the guy with the sword and he was British? Oh, Highlander? Uh, the Highlander. He was oh. prosperous. Oh, and okay. uh, he was a gracious guy also. And Because I, I, I did a movie in Canada and I actually ran into Ian when I was there too. Um, <laughs> and I ran into him when he was shooting the Highlander and we had dinner together. And he, he had really fond memories of it, even though it was like his first American movie. Um, you never know who you're going to run into later. You know? So that movie was interesting because it was a period and there was no money to do it. And all those sets was all made out of um, uh, pressed foam and plastic and painted. And it was it was complicated. Is that harder to trick the eye into thinking it's real than creating a, sh a set that um, takes place now? I would say in Mask of the Red Death, I mean, I can tell that it's kind of fake a little bit. Um, based on relative to what our budget was, I think it was successful. But the the, the key thing is to have a scenic painter who knows how to paint mm. to make things look old. So all those rocks in Mask of the Red Death, it was all plastic that was molded, and we printed them out, and we mounted them on the wall, and we painted them, you know, gray, and then we she would come in and paint everything. Um, and all those people died really young because they were inhaling all these fumes all the time. It's, um, anyway, um, <laughs> it's the scenic painter that makes that work. And, mm -hmm. and 
and the cinematographer, obviously, because they have to know how to light them, right? The Corman days, they had amazing what became famous cinematographers, but they all got their start there. Um, I was looking at the other day, and uh, Janusz Kaminski was the gaffer on a lot of those movies that I did. And Mauro uh, Fiore, who who shot uh, Avatar, was the key grip. And Fain Papa Michael, who's now doing, uh, what is he doing? He's doing a superhero movie. All these guys, this is where they started. And mm. they were, they, you learn a lot when you don't have anything. You know? They learn how to make do with what's there. And they have to move really fast because those shoots were, were 21 days. And so it's a challenge. I'm not sure as a production designer, I learned as much as I should have by doing low budget movies. Because once you learn how to do things cheaply, you get stuck there. And I left designing. That's part of the reason I didn't want to do any more of those movies. So I became a writer. But um, if you're a cinematographer, or if you're an electrician, or you're a gaffer, a key grip, to learn how to do things that fast and using without all the tools and without the big cranes, how to make those moves, that's really informative and it really helps you sustain your career. I think all those guys went on because they learned how to sort of do things down and dirty. You know? Did you um, work with Roger Corman when he started the Ham and Lumberyard? Yeah, that's where I was. That's where we're okay. Well, the first Goonies was shot there, you see. So, um, there's a link. Oh, I didn't know link. That. another one. <laughs> no, I didn't know that. No, yeah. I was there, let's see, 1980. Oh, god, 86 through 90 or 86 through 89, mm. something like that. Those were the years. Yeah, is that when he sold? Did he sell it soon after that, or did he just move premises? No, I think they were there another five to six years. I mean, I don't. I was in Venice not too long. When was I? I was in Venice like about five years ago, and all that area is gone. It's all Google and it's all that stuff. It's, they've taken over that block. But that that place was the best. I mean, it was. <laughs> uh, you know, I think when I when I did the first movie with with uh, Larry Brand, they had just shot a, uh, a cockroach movie, The Nest. Ah. And the, yeah. it smelled like insects because <laughs> about a million of them escaped. And so a lot of times you hear this scribbling around, you see these cockroaches and streams flowing through. <laughs> <laughs> and the sound stages were always leak, you know, they're always leaking. There was always water coming from the ceilings and, and the sound leaked from the streets. And I think my first week there, I moved from Santa Cruz and I thought I had arrived because here I had an office in the sound stage. And Fleetwood Mac was rehearsing for a tour in one building and another band was rehearsing the guy from what was his name? I can't recall now, but he was another British band was rehearsing there. And I thought, oh, here I am on rock and roll and it's movies. And that I had, I think I had mo- more fun because it was the beginning. You don't know what mistakes you can make. You know? mm-hmm. So when I think of my early days doing those movies, they were fun because um, I didn't know any better. You know? Mm-hmm. And the, Nobody really had any any predispositions about the outcome. They just wanted it done. If you could do something excellent, then that was like a plus. It's kind mm. of hard to explain, but I'm not sure that exists these days, that kind of um, internship in a way. That's that's how it felt, because none of us on all his early movies had never done a movie before, including the director and producer. Roger opened all those doors. I'm not sure the movies were really any good. There's a few, I think, that came through. Jim Hornorski... He only did one take of it for everything. And he would shoot a movie that was 15 days. He would shoot it in 12 and he'd be happy. It was really fast. But I'm, you know, I can't really watch those movies. Uh, 
and look at them as cinema. They were just a, it's a certain kind of movie. I can't I can't explain it. I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's bad or good. It just is what it is. Mm-hmm. But it was the school, you know, for people learning. You know. Is is it just the Corman movies you can't watch, or do you just don't revisit any of the work <laughs> you've done in films? Oh, I'm not saying I can't watch them, but I can't I can't look at them as cinema. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? I mean, mm-hmm. I have a friend. Um, his father is Larry Buchanan. He did like Mars Means Women, and this is Jeff Buchanan. And, and he can't look at any of his dad's movies because, and his father would make movies in a weekend. You know, he <laughs> do them really fast. He would have the poster before he did the movie. Um, yeah, it's all different scales of things. You know, um, is it just is it the fact that you say okay, would have done things differently? Because I wouldn't have thought you would have done, but uh, or is it the fact that you just you remember everything surrounding the scene? that's playing and you just can't get into it. Um, that's part of it. It's hard to enjoy something that you know what went on and you knew if I just had made that decision or if I had five more dollars, a lot of it's budget. For a few years, um, this is I, after I didn't leave the film industry, but when I sold the script, I eventually moved to, to Madrid, to Spain. I lived there for about seven years. And uh, when I came back, I worked with a friend um, who ran an organization called Nalif, which is a Latino film group. And they would meet in Tucson and then Santa Fe for you know like two months during the summer. I did that for seven years. And I would design all the sets. And um, what they did was they took four filmmakers who had Latino backgrounds or Latino themes. And they were able to shoot like two or three minutes or three scenes from their movies as sort of an entree into Hollywood. And so they had a lot of sponsorship They had HBO and Warner Brothers, et cetera. And they, and so I'd be responsible for helping them make these scenes. And I had no money. Everything I had to do was borrowed. You know, I think they gave me a thousand dollars at one point to buy some props <laughs> for like four filmmakers. And we shot 12 scenes and they had professional cinematographers and had a professional crew. They paid everybody, the crew, but in terms of materials and timing, and I, I had two weeks to do it all. No matter what I did, no matter how much they knew the limitations, nobody was really ever happy because they said, well, why didn't I get the blue guitar? <laughs> why, didn't, why, why couldn't we paint that wall? Because you were in a location, especially in New Mexico, where the, the church was you know, a thousand years old and I couldn't touch anything. They were never happy. And that's mm. always kind of the, the, the stigma of low-budget movies, at least back then. Now I think it's different because of digital. But the limitations were always on your mind. You always, it was always a compromise. Even mm. though you would shoot 14 hours a day, they'd always want 16. There was no, nobody was ever really totally satisfied because they knew that if I had a little bit more, they could do something better. I'm not so sure that's true. I've seen enough big-budget movies that fail for other reasons. Um, mm. I always get that story. If there's no script, it doesn't matter what the heck you do. Or if you don't have an actor that's engaged in the part, you know, I always consider, yes, the art should kind of disappear. You know, if they don't comment about the sets, then I feel better that it fits. It works. It doesn't always happen that way, but on occasion it does. I think, I think, you know, you've left a, a legacy of, of beautiful work throughout 30 odd years, you know, in the industry, Stephen. So I, I hope you're proud of, you know, this, the stuff that you've done and you, what you've contributed to fans like us who love your work. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, that's good to hear. I, like I said, I hadn't thought about it in years and I do something totally different <laughs> now. <laughs> well, you know, whatever makes you happy. I'm glad, you know, I'm glad that you can still look back on this with, with, with fondness, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that the important thing I remember about those years that 
is to remember that even though I was younger, I didn't know anything and everything that I learned, I sort of find myself. Uh, a couple of years ago, I got involved with a hospital that was dealing with the institutional racism in, in, in Cleveland and hospitals mm-hmm. and, and uh, mothers on their first birth. The number of babies that die infant mortality is really high amongst African-American women. So my project was to shoot a video point of view of a black mother coming into a clinic and seeing what it's like to have people talk to you certain ways, microaggressions, those kind of things. And I shot it in 360 8K video. I'd never touched one of those cameras in my life. So I convinced them because I said, well, I used to work in movies and I could do anything. I didn't know anything. They bought me this camera, $8,000 camera and lights and we shot the scene and it's and it's for it's for vr so you put a headset on the doctors were supposed to experience what it's like mm-hmm. and i was able to do that learn it in a two with maybe a week and a half maybe before i shot it because i knew that i was resilient enough to make things up and to bullshit you know and that's part of what movies is it's true you know? and you know what's, what's the classic one can you ride a horse yeah and then you go off and learn you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it, to me, it was like my school days. You know, I learned how to be resilient and figure it out. Hi, folks. Grump Deb here. And remember, happy Halloween. While your ghoulies may remain unflushed, Graham and Paul will always be there to clear out the cobwebs of the Satan's den you live in during lockdown. All the best, guys, and here's to many many more pods. How did I become a fan of Ghoulies? Well, that's a funny story. My name's Andrew Johan Detouche. It was the summer of 1990. I had just turned six years old and was about to open my birthday gift from my grandmother. It was the original Ghoulies on VHS. Now, she had no idea what she was getting me. And with that cover art, (laughs) who would have ever known? How could she have known that she was setting me up for this lifelong obsession of horror, tiny rubber puppets, and the occult? She just saw a little bald-headed creature wearing a tank top and suspenders popping up out of a toilet and figured, eh, potty humor was probably the best thing for her grandson as he would appreciate that most. And she was right. Now, today, I'm 37. And not only is Ghoulies still a top favorite of mine, but I still love toilet humor, especially when it gets you in the end. We are back, and now standing at one of my favorite games in Hardin's Carnival, the Strongman game. I've always wanted to have a go on this one. I hope there's no rat ghoulies hanging around it this time, though. <laughs> yes, well, why don't you give it a go whilst I introduce our amazing musical act. Okay, here we go. Ah, shit. You okay, Paul? Ow. Yeah, that really hurt. They are huge Ghoulies fans. Uh, They generously provided our theme tune and are ready to rock you harder than you have ever been rocked before. Live from Satan's Den, the incomparable fun never starts. Let's go. 
We're fun to overstart. Happy Halloween.
I mean, just... Yeah, you heard it here first. Dead. Blank stare. We brought in the Pinero's I think we talk about dying like every day. Yeah, well, <laughs> when job, that's why they got rid of us. Well, these guys are going to die real soon. They wanted me to quit because I was suicidal. <laughs> <laughs> what? Son of a bitch. It always happens. God, why is it always me? <laughs> <laughs> uh, someone put shit in my face. <laughs> <laughs> that was the yeah. auto bar show. Was fucking chumpest. Why don't you smoke this? Yup, 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 yup.
stop fooling around. The Toilet Patrol We are The Toilet Patrol Yeah, get on the knees Say pretty please Fuck your fault Enjoy the dirt Dirt's word Shit Out of your mess, radio guy, your porcelain master. Baby, dumpling don't make you a toilet disaster. Fucked. You're fucked. The band, the cat, and the round strike again. Yeah, baby. They come to welcome you to. Yeah. They come to welcome you
Thanks for having us. Happy Halloween. Go eat a go eat a ghost. Go go fight a go fight a werewolf. Go uh go sleep with a Dracula. Just get real weird with it. <laughs> go on. Get the fuck out of here. Dr. Frankenstein went to Home Depot and bought a balloon and put it in a tummy. Happy Halloween, everybody. It's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcasting mouthpiece of the Southeast, Brandon A. Lane, giving a spooky shout out to our fellow Project Louder network members across the pond who are bringing you this excellent live episode of Ghoulies Unflushed. And despite what Paul and Graham might lead you to believe, the uncontested best ghoulie by far is the cat ghoulie because he's so pathetic and he makes me laugh every single time. All the same, guys. Keep up the excellent work, and happy Halloween. Hi, this is Stephen Griffiths, just sending some love to the Ghoulies Unflushed podcast. Paul, Grim, you're doing a great job. I um, just want to say I've loved Ghoulies from a very young age. It was basically my Mary Poppins. I saw Ghoulies 2 first, so saying Ghoulies with the eye lasers later was a bit weird. Also, um, Larry should never have left Sir Nigel to run Satan's Den. That was a dick move. Anyway, keep up the good work, and I'll be listening in the future. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, Satan's Den. Hello. We have amassed a small crowd outside of Satan's Den, all waiting to go in after being closed for many, many years. And here we are at its grand reopening. Are you excited? This really is incredible. We're outside of Satan's Den, and it is buzzing. And soon we will be entering the den and giving you all a blow-by-blow account of a newly refurbished abode. But before then, uh, we really need to introduce our last guest of the evening, and what an amazing person to end on. Uh, what hasn't he been in? Everything from Bill and Ted, Monkey Bones, Spaceballs, uh, Garbage Pal Kids, the list is endless. And of course, Ghoulies 4. Uh, with the greatest pleasure, Mr. Arturo Gill. Here I am. Yay! Bravo. (laughs) So, you know what I found is the interview. Which one's Graham? Yeah, me. Okay. Harry one. The interview with me, what, about two years ago? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, uh, I did hear today that apparently the book's supposed to be coming out in October. Oh, that's right. It's a book. Okay. Yeah, it's a book. Um, But uh, obviously COVID put a stop to, like, that for best part of two years so, um, they're sucks, aiming man. i know yeah. i know so they're aiming for october but don't hold me to it because it's been delayed about fucking six times already so <laughs> no shit oh yep. god well i hope so, it comes out soon i want to read it definitely yeah me too i can't remember what it was about <laughs> <laughs> don't ask you what's about what <laughs> Oh, you're funny. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, thanks so much for agreeing to speak with us. I mean, uh, I actually I dug around on uh, on the internet to see where else 
you'd been interviewed. And there's a few here and there, but you don't seem to do this too often. So we're I, even I, more honored to have you I on. I don't do it. And, you know, I already turned you down once. <laughs> yeah. Very convincing. And I appreciate it. So I'm like, you know what? I should get into this more often. It's uh, it's kind of fun. <laughs> and it's just, you know, sometimes what happens is I forget what I've done. Everything kind of runs together and mm-hmm. kind of blends. It's like when I watch TV, I watch an episode of something. Oh, I haven't watched this. Oh, no, I have. So it's my career. It's like everything <laughs> blends together because maybe it's the the latex that I've been sniffing in all these years that my memory <laughs> lapses or something like that. So who knows? <laughs> someone told me, and I won't name drop here, but someone did tell me you will never get art for an interview. Oh, I wonder who said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess they were wrong, right? They were wrong. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell him. It was, Just no, send it was, me the uh, check later on, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Well, I, I've done a bit of digging, but mm-hmm. you know, it's this is going to be great because we're going to learn more about you than I could find. Okay, yeah. cool. so, so I hope it's all good stuff. This is all. Of course, it's going to be good stuff. This is going to be all about you, Art. So, well, <laughs> let's let's go to the start then of your career. I mean, I've heard that you were doing DJing and working in the electronics industry before you yes. began acting. Yeah, that, that is how correct. did yeah. how did that lead to this then? Uh, well, that was a long story, but I'll make it short for you. No pun. <laughs> Um, the, uh, you know, after, uh, moving back from Puerto Rico, I lived in Puerto Rico for 13 years from three months of age to 13 years of age. I picked up the language after divorce, mom and dad moved to new Orleans. I'm sorry, only mom, mom divorced dad. Mm -hmm. So mom brought us back to new Orleans where I I was born and I went to school there. My teenage years were there and I started working at this restaurant and, uh, they had a DJ booth. Uh, and then I saw an advertisement for a broadcasting school, broadcasting school, broadcasting Institute of America. One of the DJs at a famous rock and roll station, uh, was holding classes, training you how to use the board, the mixer board and how to spin records, you know, how to use the, the commercial cartridges and stuff, stuff like that. So I'm like, okay, I'll do that. So little by little, I got trained at that time. You needed an FCC license to broadcast over the airways. Uh, now you don't. I mean, that's how dated I am. I'm so old. Anyway, but uh, <laughs> so I got interested in radio and uh, I started spinning disco at a place called Anything Goes in New Orleans. And so I got up everybody dancing. And the teacher from the broadcasting school uh, had some openings at the radio station, WRNO in New Orleans. And I was doing... Um, Broadcasting shortwave music, shortwave radio music, and they use these big, huge reel-to-reels. And uh, then I heard about an opening at WWOZ, which is a traditional jazz and blues station in New Orleans, and they were looking for volunteers. So I joined up. Then I became a staff volunteer where I would train the new DJs how to use a board, how to play the music, and stuff like that. In fact, because it's called WWOZ. I was coined the mayor of Oz, the Wizard of Oz. So I would walk, I would do promotions for the radio station in a tuxedo and a top hat, and you know, welcome to WWZ. You know, so it's <laughs> so that's how it kind of got going. And then my oldest brother, who lived in uh, Long Beach near Los Angeles, California, he said, you know, hey Art, why don't you move out here to California, the land, the land of opportunities? And I'm like, okay, uh, bye, mom. So at 22 years old. I packed up my 68 Mustang. I pulled the trailer, packed up all, all my stuff in my trailer, 
went across country, moved in with my brother, started looking for work as a DJ in this very competitive market. And there's no way I was going to break in. You have to kind of get into the smaller markets like the, you know, the little mom and pop, mom and pop radio stations out in the in, in the country. And I didn't want to do that. So um, I'm, I'm just kind of moving along, if you don't mind, how it kind of jumped in my acting career. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, I met uh, I had to get my resume done. So I needed some work and the radio thing was not panning off. And I had no interest in acting whatsoever then. No way. Uh, even though I had a lot of little people friends in the business, uh, I, I was never inclined to go that path. So the 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 lady that made my resume because I had to apply for jobs uh, made a really beautiful resume with my limited work experience, and she says, "Hey, you know my son? Uh, he's a manager at a, uh, a computer a circuit board manufacturer." Uh, and they're looking actually the first place with a drilling company, then the second place with circuit manufacturer. But anyway, uh, the son said, uh, yeah, we're looking for people. Uh, why don't you come in for an interview? Uh, the manager looked at me like, well, wait a second. How are you going to reach the equipment? I'm like, no big deal. I'll bring along my two step. Oh, nice. you got the job. So I got the job <laughs> on, on the spot there. So I did that for about four or five years. I jumped from a drilling company to a circuit manufacturing company. And all of a sudden, I started getting calls from my little people friends that are in the business. Hey, Art, they're doing this big movie. They need about a thousand little people. I'm exaggerating. They need a bunch <laughs> of little people. And uh, I asked my boss, uh, my uh, my programmer boss, because I was a a computer operator and I would train uh, people how to use uh, the, the computers, connect them, user interface. I'd run reports. And the programmer was my boss. And I says, hey, boss, anyway. I could uh, take a couple of days off to do a job. Oh, yeah, we love having a celebrity amongst us. I'm like, okay, cool. See ya. So um, I'm trying to remember what was the first one I did. Um, I got to look at my IMDb page. Sorry, my brain. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm tracking here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know by one of my first films was Grunt, the wrestling yeah. movie. Oh, my gosh. I don't know why I did that. But anyway. <laughs> I remember um, watching that. I remember watching that. I used to have that. Yeah, it's too. a really bad movie. It's just a bunch <laughs> of yeah, it's, it's a wrestling movie, and yeah, we're, yeah. we're the the pyramid. And uh, yeah, so um, to bring it up to date here, yeah. So yeah, Grant was my first one. Grant was my first one, and uh, she let me off to do that for a couple of days. Then uh, I got another call to do space balls, and this time they need quite a bit and they I asked my boss can I take a couple weeks off oh yeah go for it go for it space balls yeah who's doing that Mel Brooks oh Mel Brooks oh yeah go 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 want to hear all about it (laughs) uh so I went for the casting call and if I recall they lined us all up against a wall at the old MGM studios in Culver City and there was about probably 20 little people there and they, um, Mel Brooks came out, introduced himself. Hi, I'm Mel Brooks. Duh. Uh, <laughs> nice to meet you. Uh, okay, I want you. I want you. I want you. I want you. So he went down the line picking the people that he want. He picked six people. Mm-hmm. And I was one of them. I'm like, whoa, this is really cool. I didn't have my union card yet. So I asked my agent, like, well, how am I going to get my union card? Oh, don't worry about it. They'll take care of it. So I got my SAG card. On Spaceballs. Oh, cool. Thanks to Mel Brooks. 
So that was really, really cool. Um, but I had the best time. We went to uh, – we shot at MGM Studios on one of their uh, stages. Uh, and it was the last time, the last film being filmed at the old MGM Studios when I think – was it Sony that took over the studios? I can't recall. Yeah. But I remember tearing down the, the, the lion, the famous MGM lion. Uh, chicken chipping away at the entrance of the gate to the studios. I'm like, oh, oh no, it's the last time. But uh, yeah. what fun memories! And Mel Brooks was a riot to work with. Uh, John Candy, uh, oh my gosh, the greatest guy. He uh, he gave us all dinks uh, a plaque. Uh, I didn't know I was going to be on video. I could have shown you guys. Uh, I could have <laughs> gone get it, but uh, but he gave, he gave us all a milk bone. Yeah. Says, Thanks, Arturo. Great meeting you. Uh, John Candy, a.k.a. Barth. So I've got <laughs> this plaque of a milk bone uh, oh, awesome. on display, so it's really cool. Um, so that was my experience up there. And so that's kind of how I got into it. It was mm-hmm. kind of like uh, little by little. And mm-hmm. then what I really, when I finally quit the job at the computer place, the manufacturing place, uh, I got an opportunity to work uh, in Israel on a Canon film called Snow White. Okay, it wasn't called mm-hmm. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs because Disney owns the rights to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. You call it Snow White. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the characters changed. They were not happy, dopey, sleepy. Uh, we were itty-bitty, kitty-litty, fitty. <laughs> I was kitty. I guess maybe a happy guy. I don't know. But mm-hmm. I had the best time. We're there for, for four weeks. Um they gave us the royal treatment there. We stayed at the Hilton. I believe it was Hilton. Red carpet treatment. I'm like, you know what? I'm beginning to like this uh, <laughs> this career choice maybe. Do I quit or what? So, um, <laughs> in fact, my little, my little my middle brother, Ricardo, uh, he's also a little person. He came along as well. And, in mm-hmm. fact, when we uh, they cast that film, uh, Snow White, they, they two little people dropped out. And so they – we're in a hurry to find two little people replacements. And my brother and I were available. So we went in and we got the job. We show up in Israel and I can't remember his name, but the director says, wait, you guys don't look dwarfish. It what? He says, you guys look like a leading man. I'm like, well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> make up. We need to make these guys up, make them really look like dwarfs. So they caved all kinds of shit on me, beards, noses, ears, and, but what a wonderful experience. Uh, uh, I got the nicest tan there in Israel. Uh, we shot in Tel Aviv at a soundstage that was full of holes. Holes. You could hear jackhammers in the background. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, how are we going to do this? We had to come back and re-loop the whole thing. The song, the dialogue. Oh uh, and it was, wow, incredible. But uh, I came back to work. <laughs> said uh, her name was Karen. Karen, um, I'm sorry. I'm gonna have to give you my two weeks notice. What? No, you can't do that. Like, I'm sorry. I got to do it now. It's the the chance of a lifetime. If I don't do this now, I don't want to have to regret it later on in life. Mm-hmm. And then and, and, you know, have the the chance to see if I can become a uh, a paying actor. You know, working actor, should I say? So, yeah. So that's how it kind of all started, and that's. At that time, that's when I quit my nine to five job. Mm. But uh, I did do some some work for them later on because they had actually went bankrupt. So I helped them close the shop down. And I did some uh, some work on the side for them. But I uh, know after that, 
you know, I was looking 30 years, more than 30 years of this crazy business. Yeah. I was like, where did the time go? You know? <laughs> anyway. Well, well when you, yeah, well, when you started this, I mean, I said you, you, you weren't, you didn't plan on being an actor. And, you know, you, let's say, for example, you chucked under the set of Spaceballs. Uh, you know, were you daunted? You know, was it daunting to be around actors and stuff when you didn't particularly think of yourself as one at that point? No, I didn't think it was daunting. I thought it was really exciting. It was like, wow, I'm working with some of the big guys, the big, you know, big shooters here, like Mel Brooks and John Candy. Who would have imagined working with uh, some great actors? Uh, uh, no, I, it, I, they treated us very well. I mean, we weren't, it wasn't anything overwhelming or you know, it's 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 just it was just a pleasure to work with these talented people, directors, producers, and it. it uh, I kind of rolled in. It it, it wasn't like, uh, oh my gosh, can I have your autograph? No, no, I'm I'm a professional. I won't do that. <laughs> but although I've taken some pictures with like John Candy and stuff like that, it was a great picture of me of John Candy uh, standing next to me as Barf and me as as the Dink, and uh, I love that shot. But uh, you know, rest in peace, John. He was uh, what a wonderful comedian you know his, his timing was uh exceptional but no it wasn't it was it, I, I kind of slid in and it's like mm -hmm. no training whatsoever you know i i kind of learned on the go and i would mm -hmm. watch other actors perform and you know in the beginning of my career i did some stand-in work for kids you know with double kids and and do the dialogue with the tall actors while the kids went to school and mm -hmm. i would watch the actors the leading actors you know do their lines and perform and do all the blocking for them while the kids at school, and it just I learned from like uh, uh, Burt Reynolds. I mean, I did a show, uh, uh, Evening Shades. Uh, he was uh, the lead in in the show, and he worked with a lot of kids, so we were his stand-ins for the kids. Mm -hmm. And I would like perform with Burt Reynolds and do dialogue with him. You know, of <laughs> course, I wasn't off script, but I would read the dialogue and do the blocking for him, uh, except when uh, he had to pick me up. Because I was a little heavier than the kids, so. <laughs> but, uh, but no, they practiced with little people, mm -hmm. portraying little kids, and they brought in the kids to film the rest of the uh, the sitcom. Yeah, okay. Well, they kind of the kids work in the hours that you can work either. So, That's yeah, correct. So. Yeah, and they need a certain amount of uh, schooling time too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I guess this kind of leads us reasonably uh, quickly to the you, you playing arguably the best garbage pal kid. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, definitely. it was always my favorite. Yeah, oh, yeah. I appreciate that. You know, yeah. everybody. You know, when they say I play Wendy Winston, they're like, "You play Wendy Winston?" <laughs> oh my gosh! And you know, I I got that job because I've worked with uh no, I got that job because of uh, Phil Fonda Carroll. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure you know who Phil is. I think you did an interview yeah. with Phil. Uh, <clears throat> he's the guy who said we wouldn't get you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to have a conversation with him. <laughs> Phil, <laughs> uh, God, I haven't talked to Phil in ages. I mean, we're good friends, but we just, you know, lost touch. Uh, but yeah, he was. Uh, he suggested me because I think they're looking for the right size for Wendy Winston. And of, uh, of course, Phil, you know, he's quite a character himself. Uh, wonderful actor. Uh, and uh, yeah, they encased us in these big old bulky heads. Uh, that we couldn't really see out of, and they're all animatronics. And in fact, when we had to do relooping, they loved my voice in the head. Mm. They brought the head back to the looping session. Said, <laughs> cool. Why are you bringing Winston Winston's head? Oh, Art, we love the voice you do in there. 
I'm like, what? <laughs> no, I don't want to wear that thing again. I'm like, no, no, you have to. I'm like, okay. I'm getting paid through this looping session. So I relooped most of my lines using the Wendy Winston head. <laughs> Good time. Tom Beekler, wow. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll get to John because there's a couple yeah. of projects you've worked with him. But obviously, actually, that's a quick question before you mm-hmm. go because I think when I spoke to you last time, I mentioned that my, my son was obsessed with the movie at the time and your yeah, character. Yeah. Now, you do this thing when you're farting in the movie where it's kind of like you're really into it. The whole body goes. Is this something? How did where did that come from? Maybe, maybe that's just my gait. I don't know. No, when I when I when I did Wendy Winston, I I wanted to have a little bit of an attitude. I mean, the the character is African American. I mean, so because I I was from New Orleans, uh, I had to throw in a little bit of New Orleans, little Puerto Rican salsa. I don't know, just the the attitude it's like when, when i move my ass can i say ass on here when i when i move my butt uh it was like uh they loved it you know and i just like it. <laughs> and then the, the scene with the with the motorcycle uh on the quads i didn't do that stunt my friend joe did that but the, just the fighting scene getting up on the bar and punching yeah. that one biker and an alligator bites a guy's toe that was a fun scene altogether. We just had a blast, but uh, yeah, you know that they had so pretty heavy. Um, but just the attitude came from my my roots, and it's uh, my jive, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> you guys. <laughs> it was re- actually it was really nice actually because uh, I watched the the Garbage Pal Kid documentary uh, they uh-huh. did a while ago, and again it was nice to see you popping up in that. I was popping up my butt again <laughs> up in the chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> well, see that was one interview um, I did. So mm-hmm. yeah, yes, no, that's true, yeah. and it was great to see you again. You know, this yeah, is well, the kind of thing. That. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, let's let's do bogus journey then because um. Uh, you know, you played one half of, of Station and became one of probably one of the most well loved and memorable characters in that franchise. He, he had a nice ass too. <laughs> <laughs> he did he did right? Nice what? big old big old cheeks and a nice crack, you know. <laughs> I I no, anyway, no, he you know I too was a replacement on that film. Um, originally, it was uh, of course it was Ed Gale. He was Station Number One. Mm-hmm. Uh, station Number Two was. Uh, Tony Cox, and uh, he couldn't do it for some reason. And they called my agent, and they said, uh, "Art, uh, can you fit into this costume? What is it? Go over there right now." Uh, Tony and I are sort of similar dimension sizes, a build, um, and uh, so I went over there. I fit like a glove, and I got the job. I didn't audition. I just fit into the costume. But that was one of the toughest costumes, to tell you. Um, Hot. Uh, We were in there probably four to five hours. Of course, they pull off the head and cool us down with with cool fans and stuff. Uh, Lots of water. I didn't have to pee once because I just sweat that stuff out. (laughs) (laughs) So um, there was one time uh, uh, I was looking up. They had removed the headpiece, the front piece that rotated. And uh, they were spraying some uh, some glue and I looked up and they sprayed something else it was fixer I guess the fixer helps the the glue adhere better and I'm like what the heck was that why I got some in my eye I'm like oh shit no no you okay I'm like yeah I'm fine 
I had my contacts on, so I think that kind of protected my eye, my eyes. So, but yeah, it was kind of weird. Like, what is that? What are you spraying me with? <laughs> and then they all contact out. Yeah, I know. I had to clean it out afterwards. I think I, it ruined it because I could only see out of one eye. Uh, the other thing is they had put a because uh, it was so hot. We we're shooting at Vasquez Rocks. I don't know if you know where that is. It's a in the LA area, it's a nice. It's where they shot a lot of Star Trek stuff, and yeah, yeah. it's got oh, the, yeah. the jagged rocks. Um, we're sitting out there in the sun, and they had put us uh, in a cool suit. It's um, it's like what racers wear when they're uh, racing, and they pump cold water through the vest. There's tubing all over the place, mm-hmm. and they had put, uh, they had uh, connected cold icy water into the tubing. And I'm like, whoa, that's too fast of a cooling session. And, you know, because your body can go into shock from being so hot to cold. And I say, guys, you got to stop that. Don't give me cold water. Just give me, you know, tempered water, you know, or, uh, uh, yeah, and just take it off. And uh, mm-hmm. I got scared because I started, I started shaking and uh, they had to pull me out. But uh, but they had made some special chairs for us, too. They used, uh, you know, what an apple box is, right? It's a little square box that mm-hmm. they used to yeah. stand certain things. They made us uh, armrest and a backrest, and mm-hmm. uh, so we were very comfortable. No, they they treated us very well. They kept making sure that we were okay, and you know, we got out of lunchtime. After lunchtime, we got back in it, and uh, you know, we had these big old hands that we had to use these rings mm-hmm. uh, to manipulate the the fingers way out here, and the feet were huge. They're like clown shoes, so you had to kind of walk on your heels like a clown, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, it was fun. Alex Winter, Keanu Reeves are really great. Um, uh, Bill Sadler, the nicest guy ever. We had some good times, you know, filming. Did wow. did did that relationship with Alex Winter lead to Freak? Then, absolutely. Yeah, there was. There's another <laughs> story. So um, Alex was creating or producing with a friend, I think Tom Stern, uh, Freak, um, and uh, he had a part for me. And he says, can you, uh, I would like you to go down to this guy, Screaming Mad George was the effects guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he created uh, the eyeball. And when I was inside the eyeball, you know, I and I, the characters in there, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. with the machine guns, the Rasta, <laughs> I think they were Rasta eye, eyeballs. Yeah. They, uh, they had me encased in the total eyeball. And so I would look out the lens. And what would happen is that the lens would get so fogged up I couldn't see through. Hmm. So they had to kind of reinvent it and have somebody taller where they, they can cut a hole in the top of the, the eyeball and he sticks his head out the eyeball and they put the Rasta hat on top and he could see out the Rasta hat. Uh, okay. So I'm no, I don't know if you're aware that the, the guy's heads are in the hat. So my friend Joe and I can't remember the other actor that took it uh did that part but um alex felt bad says art you know i'm sorry it's not gonna work out for you like hey don't worry about it just but i got a part for you i'm like okay uh would you like to be the farting clown <laughs> and i'm like uh, yeah sure I, I i like to work so i you know i played the farting clown and uh i fought I your weight and i would like pop out see the fart. what is it with this thing with farts yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> freaking place anyway so so i would fart at your weight and the last time i farted and i shit in my pants 
That was the end of the scene. They loved it. Did you channel Wendy Yeah, Winston? yeah. I, I kind yeah. of yeah, tapped into Wendy Winston and, and yeah, yeah. his station with a big butt and it all kind of tied in. <laughs> and, you know, and I think maybe that's why they call me Art the Fart. I don't know. That's my, that's my, uh, <laughs> well, that, another example of working with the same actor more than once, which I'm sure you've done, but I'm just going by your IMDb and what I've seen you in. So, like, but you're in um, Dirty Work with Norm MacDonald, and then again in TV, you popped up in the Norm show. Yeah. Was that another case of did he kind of go, oh, well, we work with Art here. Can we have him again for this? I, I don't recall that one, uh, with no? the exception of Alex. That was, yeah, recommended. But hmm. with Norm, I don't remember if it was because I worked on Dirty Work. Um, and uh, I did what, Meowth, I think it was, on the Norm show. Mm. Um, I think that was actually a casting call because there were some other little people there too. So my agent, Corley Jr. Agency, uh, I think booked me on that one. Mm. But I don't think it was uh, that case where he remembered me. Uh, it could have been. I, I can't remember, to be honest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, I uh, I had no idea actually how much TV work you had done over the years, <laughs> especially mm-hmm. as it's all stuff I grew up watching. Okay, like, like you know, I mean, you know, from like Ali McBeal to Third Rock to, to mm-hmm. uh, Don't Shoot Me and Charmed, all this stuff I watched. And now thinking back, I'm you're kind of like trying to <laughs> hang on a minute. That I think that was I do remember him in that episode, <laughs> but I, did, I didn't put more and more together. So is it the same thing then? Is is TV stuff? Is it a question of auditioning, or do you ever just get someone like oh, it's going to be perfect for this? Uh, mo- most of it is auditioning. It it is it's a casting call. They put it over the lines, and my agent calls me. You have an audition. Be at this place x amount of time, and uh, and here's your dialogue. You know, get off book. Uh, uh, for instance, with Ali McBeal, I had, uh, I think I had three interviews. Uh, they finally booked me. And that was my biggest role outside of effects and creature effects. Um, I was so, so nervous. I was sick to my stomach working with um, uh, Calista Flackhart and uh, Iron Man. What's his name? Oh, Robert Downey Jr. Robert yeah, Robert Downey Jr. Dog. Uh, <laughs> Very nice. Very Robert was very nice. He but he was intense. I mean, he got to me. It's like uh, it made my character come out. And uh, and I don't know if you know the storyline of that. You know, the the we met. Uh, I met this girl online in the storyline. This was before FaceTime or or having <laughs> webcams. It was I think yeah. IRC. Uh, <laughs> oh wow! So remember IRC? Yeah. 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 Oh, text. Cool. yeah. So we met over that and. Um, we finally meet, but she doesn't, she doesn't have a clue. I'm a little person. And, uh, we finally meet at, uh, at a park in New York, I think it was. And she says, Oh, you're, you're Douglas McGrath. I'm like, yeah. She says, Oh, you didn't tell me you're a little person, a dwarf. You never asked. So she sued me for non-disclosure. Mm-hmm. And I remember it well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it didn't go well. It did. No, no. She's, I remember the episode well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the um, she won the case. Callista was my lawyer. Yeah. Uh, Robert Downey was the, the the opposing lawyer, and they won the case. And they sued me for I can't remember how much they won, but uh, mm-hmm. I was like, well, but that would never happen in real life. That's a no. that no. David E. Kelly storyline that you know way out there. You know, <laughs> well, I get back to your question. A lot of the stuff that I do is audition stuff. Uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah I, it's not recommendations. Uh, uh, even though, you know, of course, John Beekler had recommended me for stuff and Alex and some of the other people, but most of most of the stuff, TV work, film commercials, it's all done by audition. And now, of course, everything is done online now. So uh, you interview, you know, via Skype, I think. What's the other one? There? They're using another program. I can't remember what it is, what it is. but yeah, you can do dialogue. Yeah. I just bought a ring ring light. Yeah. Oh yeah. I I should have put it on now. I didn't know I was going to be on camera. But anyway, <laughs> but uh, yeah, now it's all done online, and it's kind of nice because then I don't have to travel to LA because mm -hmm. I live in uh, in Ventura County, which is about an hour north of Los Angeles, and so the drive can be a pain in the butt, especially with LA traffic. But it's just very convenient now to have a uh, online auditions yeah. yeah that's cool i mean a, mm. a friend of mine does tends to audition but he does um he's done it quite a bit he just pre-records his audition and then just sends it across do you i've done that, do that too yeah mm. yeah i've done that too but my last commercial was for a uh, uh uh a chevy truck and they wanted somebody spanish so i'm fluent in spanish and it was all done live I, and i did my dialogue in spanish but i told my agent he says you know what i don't look spanish i mean speak the language Mm -hmm. But I look like a white boy, you know. I don't look like the typical <laughs> Hispanic, dark skin, olive skin. He says, "Oh, just go. It'd be great practice." I'm like, "Okay." Mm -hmm. So I did it anyway, just for practice, because I've never done it before with that application that we used, mm -hmm. and it was live. I've never done it live, like you said. I've done it uh, pre-recorded. Then you you upload it to their website, and then they yeah. view it, and they call yeah. you, or they don't call you. So. <laughs> right most of the time they don't call so go on <laughs> is it is it the same is it is it kind of do you have like a big board table and all these people around it watching you or uh is it more no it's usually the first time he's just casting the casting director mm. uh, he's sitting you know at his laptop or desktop and then uh i think he the online the live online is is recorded while he's doing the dialogue and then he submits it to the casting directors or the producers executive producers you know mm -hmm. i don't know how that works behind the scenes but uh, that's how it was done uh, you know we used to go in and audition you know they put you on tape uh the producers are not there the producers might be there for callbacks or for the third callback mm -hmm. and they want to meet you in person they want to maybe try to d direct you and tell you okay try it this way try it with this feeling or they want to see your your ability to change up your 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 psyche or your character and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. so. did you do any kind of Spanish? I don't, we didn't get this, but I know that you were part of it for quite some time when you were playing uh, machete for the, uh, <laughs> right now. What? I've seen pictures and yeah. you look awesome in the hat. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and that, that was like a thing that I didn't want to do. Um, I, I was helping my agent with castings with that because I knew, uh, a lot of Hispanic little people, and they wanted a, a, a Spanish-speaking little person fluently that could speak fluent, fluent Spanish. And I would send all my friends, and uh, my agent Coralie says, "All right, they don't like anybody." I, says, I don't know. That's I ran out of people. Uh, he says, "Why don't you go in?" I'm like, Coralie, again, I don't look Spanish. I, you know, I've got blonde hair. I look white. Uh, I mean, I get tan, but right now I look like a like what they call a guero. Which is a white boy in in, in, in Hispanic <laughs> terminology, a slang. Um, I said, no, just just go in, just go in. I'm like, okay, I'll go in. I booked the job. And I'm like, they want me to like do some character work and some Spanish, and 
do some funny cat cackling. And I did this cackle, you know, <laughs> and, this, and they loved it. And they wanted me to say this one tagline or this one line, which is, means you're out of here, pa fuera. And I would like do the cackle, pa fuera. And <laughs> I got the job on the spot. So I, I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. The first show we did was of dancers. I had to uh, audition dancers and they're like squirreling all over the place. Then I've got an IFB in my ear, an earpiece. Uh, they're directing the camera equipment or the camera crew, uh, operator, should I say? And I'm hearing, I'm, I'm hearing this. Take one, take two, take three. So I'm thinking, oh, they want me to take out number one. Uh, he had, you know, the number uh, contestant yeah. number one, mm -hmm. number two, and then I get it. No, you're taking out the wrong people. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> take one, take two. So I went into the control booth, like. What happened? I got directions to take out the contestants. You took out the wrong guys. I'm like, well, nobody, you know, what, what do you, no, 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 no. That was camera uh, blocking or, or camera. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I didn't know. This first time I did live TV on mm -hmm. three cameras and like, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, but they changed the format. Instead of dancers now, they brought in singers. Mm. So it was like uh, a little bit of gong show, San Kao. Uh, we had our own little stage. Uh, it was a variety show. They brought in big bands from Mexico, from all over the country. You know, they had salsa. They had uh, Mexican music. They had all kinds of Latin American Latin music. And uh, then I'd have my segment, and I would audition for contestants. Uh, they had a chance to win, I think, $500 or $1,000 at one time, but then they brought it down. Um, and if they sang well, uh, I would give them or I would leave. I had two cages, two prison cages. One had mini wrestlers and one had uh, um, an effeminate guy. Uh, <laughs> and if if he if the singer won, I'd release him and he'd kiss on the contestant. If he sucked and I said, you're out of your pa fuera, I'd release the, the release the mini wrestlers. And they would literally tackle the guy down or the girl. <laughs> You're out of here. So they would be dragged off set. And, of course, I would come out with two beautiful, voluptuous, bathing suit-wearing girls with a sign that says machete. And, uh, and the, the audience loved it. And they would, like, scream machete. And, of course, I'd go through the audience kissing all the girls. And then I'd walk up on stage. Then I'd do the countdown. You're out of here. And it. And it was eight years of fun. Uh, wow. Yeah, I was really surprised. Uh, but it was well received by the Mexican population, especially here in Los Angeles. Uh, I don't get recognized from my FX stuff. Uh, people mm. don't know until I say, hey, I was stationed. You were stationed? Uh, <laughs> but the Mexicans recognize me as El Machete. Uh, <laughs> I'm driving down the, in a car on the freeway, and they'll look at me like, hey, Que onda machete? Fuera. I'm like, hey, que pasó? <laughs> but I love, I love the Mexican fans. I mean, they're very loving. I love taking pictures with them. I mm. love signing whatever they have to sign. Uh, they're very, very, very supportive of my my Hispanic career. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I did that for eight years, and they they finally canceled the show after eight years, and uh, I haven't done anything in Spanish anymore. I would love to. Mm. Yeah. That's a good run, though. Eight years, you know, it is. I can't complain. It's a long run. 
Mm. And uh, I mean, we used to shoot four shows a night sometimes. Wow. And I used to go in like at three o'clock in the afternoon and I didn't get home till about four o'clock in the morning. And to try to keep the audience, you know, hyped up, they used to give them like Cokes and, and M&Ms and uh, <laughs> chips and buy them Subway. And by the by the last show at three o'clock in the morning, there's maybe probably two or three people there. So they have to push in the cameras to make it look like there's a lot of people. <laughs> and we're trying to work with the audience like, there's only three of us. Like, wow, okay. Thanks for sticking by. We're sticking on. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> How many shows was that then for eight seasons? Uh, I think we uh, put 22 in the can. Yeah? Wow. Yeah, about 22. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a season usually. And uh, they're still running it, but it's, I think I think it's on uh, maybe on Saturdays. Mm. Uh, they used to show it weekly at, at 7, prime time. Yeah. So I had a lot of uh, viewership at that time. And it was, you know, the ratings were good, but after a while, I, you know, it's the same format. I think it just needed a little change or something different. Um, but, you know, I can't complain that yours is great, you know. Yeah. yeah. Make some good money off of that. So you still get residuals from that if they're still Not running? from that show. No. Oh. No. <laughs> that was, okay. Uh, that was a non union show. Mm. So, yeah, I get residuals off the other stuff, but uh, I'm what they, uh, what they call, uh, financial core there's a um at that time i don't know if you could do that now but financial core is like you're you're going through hardships you have to work and um a sag you know if you sign up as a financial core member you could do non-union jobs but i didn't like doing them uh because that money the the non-union stuff doesn't mm-hmm. go into my pension or my health care and stuff like that mm-hmm. so but uh that was the only thing that was happening but in the meantime Sometimes a union job would come through, and I would be able to uh, uh, do some SAG work and some or some after work. So, Paul, I've got to ask you a question quickly before I mention this. But have you seen Monkey Bone? Yes. <laughs> okay, wonderful. Because yep, yep. because yep. <laughs> I love this film. I really, really love this film. I gotta show you something. I don't know if you can see it. Hey! Uh, <laughs> wow, is that it? What oh, is it? Fantastic. Is it like is that foam latex or silicon? It's What's foam, it's it's foam latex. It's falling apart. It's um, <laughs> it's all crumbly. And uh, yeah, that's rack guard. Uh, Amazing. I just I just moved here about two years ago. I finally unpacked him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was covered in plastic, but when I opened him up, his nose is oh, no. pointing down. It had ripped here. So what yeah. I did is I put some toothpicks in it to uh, mm-hmm. repair it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, but yeah, he's uh, it looks pretty good yeah. still. Yeah, yeah from here good. anyway. Yeah. yeah, he's uh, yeah, he's quite quite the character. He's, there he is. Oh, I'm glad you've got something out like still around. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, hey, hey and I'll, you said something about Spinal Tap. Oh, I haven't yet, but I've got. Oh, it is. Where's Spinal oh. Tap? I don't see it. There, I, thought, I right have there. that. I have the VHS with with that cover. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I just I framed it a couple of years ago. I love it. It's right here in my office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, let's let, let's just do Monkey Bone then, because I, 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 you yeah. literally probably you're probably in the funniest sequence because that's whole <laughs> whole wrapped up with the whole Edgar Allan Poe calling Stephen King a pussy for wanting a nightlight, <laughs> which is just probably the best bit of the film. But it goes over so quickly, you almost miss it. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, you're obviously opposite Brendan Fraser in this, who seems yeah. to be making a bit of a comeback recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guess- he he's done some stuff recently. Yes, 
Yeah, everyone's saying he's like the nicest guy in the world. I'm like, well, yeah, I'm yeah, glad yeah. then if that's the case. Yeah, he's yeah he's he's suddenly blown up all over Facebook, isn't he? So it's good. Yeah, yeah he's, but he's great. He's a great actor. He yeah. was the greatest guy working with, and uh, and of course the rest, you know, Giancarlo Esposito and Rose McGowan, um, and uh, yeah, I forgot she gets to kill me. Yeah, she, she bite. <laughs> or she kind of. Bites your neck out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was that? Did I do a good job dying? The dying. Yeah, you're like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I Wendy Winston again. So, so was Hen- this is Henry Selick's only live action movie, I think, and it's I think it's his only live action movie so far because he did uh, Nightmare Before Christmas beforehand, yeah. and I don't think he's done anything since like that. Was was. Was he an interesting director to work with because of the way he kind of visualizes things? To be frank, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've got you know, I I, har- I could hardly see out the the eyes because I've had these uh, they call scolari uh, lenses, the do- oh. dark lenses. So I really couldn't see very well. I only had like a little pinhole mm. to look out. And so uh, somebody would come and talk to my ear and do this and do that and try this, try that. So I guess it was him. What's his name again? I'm sorry. Oh, boy. Henry Selleck. Henry Selleck. Oh, Henry Selleck. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So whoever was talking to you sounded like a nice person anyway. Yeah, he did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then poor, poor uh, Giancarlo on his knees. Uh, I, I didn't know who he was at first, but then when I looked him up later, I'm like, Holy shit, he's a good actor. Sound <laughs> <laughs> a lot of stuff. Of Rose. Yeah. What Rose is wonderful. He was great. Yeah. Yeah. I like Rose McCann. She's cool. Did you yeah. um, um this is not actually this is another th- throwback to Wendy Winston again in a way, which um, confuses <laughs> me. So I've not seen this again. I don't think it played over here. It's probably available somewhere, but I never watched Nightmare Calf. Yeah. But you oh, that played was I've seen some screenshots and I'm like, oh okay, this looks like a mm-hmm. good episode. But um, you played someone called it's, well, it's on IMDb. It says Winston slash Wind. Yes, <laughs> I was Windy the Wind. So there's another one. It's like, I I totally forgot about it until you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. Wes Craven directed that with uh, Robert England, yeah. who played uh, you know on Elm Street. What's that yeah. uh, character? Freddy. Freddy. Freddy Krueger. Yes, of course. And uh, my 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 alien companions were uh, Jimmy Briscoe and Kevin Thompson. And uh, we were, we shot that in Vancouver. Uh, wow. All this stuff is coming back to me. Wow. <laughs> uh, and we shot that. We just had the best time ever, but Wes Craven was wonderful to work with. He was a sweetest, gentlest director and, you know, he's very soft spoken and he, he just was fun to work with. Um, I would have loved to have worked with him again. Uh, I think there was a chance, but I can't remember what it was. But uh, you know, he he was great. Um, and running through that forest, oh my gosh! I don't know how I could do that now, but we had to run through this forest in the middle of the night, and I, I kept tripping over my big feet, my little feet. Any, uh, but yeah, it was great, fun times. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, I don't think we ever saw it in the UK, did we? No. Have you seen it, Paul? No, no I, I, I know of it. I know of it, but I've I know of it. it. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a great little mini series. Uh, it's not. It was supposed to be picked up, but I don't. I guess it wasn't uh, attracting a lot of attention. I, I don't know what happened to it. 
I remember seeing it in Fangora at the time. Yeah. And um, for, for me, okay, when it came out, I guess it was about 92 or something like that. So I was 11. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, we've got Wes Craven, Robert England. It's got the word nightmare in it. And it's not Freddy. I'm not watching that. <laughs> <laughs> not, ah. not that I could anyway, but yeah. I was just like, ah, no, that doesn't interest me. Now it looks like the sort of thing I'd probably really yeah. enjoy. But um, it's something it's it's something worth watching. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at here the uh, their uh, they run a mysterious all night cafe uh, following a brush of death. They soon learn they did, in fact, die and have been brought back to life by the cafe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they I, were just some of the people that they run into these aliens that they run into at this mm-hmm. cafe. And uh, um, yeah, it, it was I think this, yeah, there's even a picture of us on IMDb of us sitting at the table. Yeah, I saw and, that. Uh, <laughs> and it, we turn out to be uh, these feathered like creatures. Uh, they do a reveal later on. Mm-hmm. And Kevin, I uh, can't remember his character's name. Let's see if I see it really. Yeah, he was fire. Um, mm-hmm. So he would pull off his, his human face and out pops out this huge feather like creature. It looked really cool. So, yeah. Uh, wow. yeah. Was it like um? Was it straight horror? Was it kind of comedic? Kind of weird? it was comedic horror. It, I mean, ours. I don't think ours was as horrific as as others. I think, mm-hmm. but uh, to turn to find out that we were actually true aliens. Um, I'm trying to remember the storyline. Oh my gosh! I'm gonna I'm go gonna, find it. <laughs> yeah, um, it's on IMDb, so it's um. But I don't know if they, I don't know if Netflix or Hulu or one of those other networks has the series, but it's uh, it's worth seeing. You know, I, I would, probably I would, on YouTube. I would imagine so. Yeah, yeah everything's on YouTube. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have a look. Um, well, let's let's touch on John Beekler and Ghoulies for a second. Yeah. Um, okay. uh, although you did work with him on on Garbage Pal Kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that was a recommendation for sure. Okay, so what? So from from Ghoulies Four was a recommendation from John from, from Garbage Pail Kids. That's correct. Yes. Ah, okay. Brilliant. So in uh, of course, um, it, it was that was probably the easiest makeup ever. Um, he did a live cast of us. Uh, you know, they plaster uh, plaster on us and make a a negative mold of our head. Right. But it was it was a slip on mask. It was not a glued on mask mm-hmm. so uh during break we just could just pop off the mask and all they would do is paint the eyes black mm-hmm. and um uh pop on the head uh the mouth had a a chin piece like a football uh helmet piece where yeah. you could actually move the mouth up and down and, mm. and talk but uh i just watched a little bit of it uh the other day and i'm like they looped my lines somebody else did my lines yeah. Like, oh, I was going to ask that. Yeah. Yeah. Rascals. Because <laughs> no one's listed, I don't think. I think is there is a name. I think there no, is a name so. listed. I think. Is there? I thought, I'm sure yeah. there is. Yeah. I didn't recognize the name, but I did wonder what uh, John Beekler did in that film because there's a really cool picture of, of you and John Beekler on set. Well, oh, yes. yes. On set. And I, I don't think he's on... listed at all in the credits. So I always wondered why, why he was there if he just turned up to see what was going on or if he actually. In his shorts. Yeah, in his shorts. No, he uh, he he created the the masks, you know. Uh, and okay. He, yeah, and then what's his name? Jim Wynorski. Yeah. Uh, what a character. Uh, <laughs> didn't, didn't he do some off stuff? I mean, he's done a lot of stuff. Like like pornos. 
Yeah, oh, like softcore. Yeah. So, a lot of yeah, softcore. Yeah, softcore, softcore yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but <clears throat> great guy. He was funny. I mean, uh, yeah. I, I just remember, you know, I don't know. He just, you know, we 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 like ad lib ever so often, and he throw yeah. lines to us and and say, uh, you know, say this, Art, say this, Tony, uh, uh, and, and then do this, do that, and he he he, he kind of directed <laughs> us to do cool stuff, off script stuff, and yeah, so it, it was kind of fun. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, it very very cheesy film, but very funny, yeah. uh, very yeah. campy. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I loved it, and. Uh, had you seen the previous Ghoulies films before you worked on it? Or? I have, yes. I, I yeah. saw bits and pieces. Uh, um, I saw Phil. Phil Fondacaro was in in one of them, right? Yeah, he was in part, part two. two. Part two, okay. Yeah, yeah. I saw his, um, but no, I, I did not see the whole. I think there's four or five now. Five? How many? Uh, no, oh. four. Four is the last one so okay, far. Four is the last one. Okay. okay. <laughs> so far, we're hoping yeah. to see another one. <laughs> so, make one, yeah yeah did you did you think it was strange at all to play a ghoulie when they sort of been puppets in all the previous films was that a pressure yeah, i i thought it was i mean i thought they'd continue with the puppets uh mm-hmm. but i think uh i don't know if it was for budgetary reasons mm-hmm. i don't know um if it was for um i've heard both sides somebody that could run and walk and and yeah. interact with the other actors um mm-hmm. Um, that that's what I think. I think the puppets are very limited in what they can do, yeah. unless you have a, a body running around, jumping into the back of the truck, uh, messing with a prostitute. Uh, yeah. The uh, so yeah, it's. I'm I'm glad I got to do it. I mean, it's it's uh, it's another yeah. thing on my resume. <laughs> I think Wynorski was the guy who was like, I don't want puppets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you've got him to thank. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Yeah. But um, I, I know you obviously Tony Cox was the other ghoulie in the film. Yes. And you mentioned him earlier from uh, Bill and Ted. Was there any yes. link to that? Was obviously you replaced him in that film, which I didn't. We, I didn't know about. But. Yeah, I, I replaced him in Bill and Ted. Um, so I, I Tony Tony knows a lot of people in the industry, so mm-hmm. he he gets he gets booked. Uh, but I don't think he does any more creature effect stuff. Uh, I mean that's really taxing. Uh, yeah. It's hard on the, on the human body. Uh, I won't do any more creature effects. I'm sort of semi-retired right now. But mm-hmm. if my agent calls me, hey, you got a casting interv- interview? I'd go. But right yeah. now, work is so so slow. There's nothing happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's I think I think what's happening right now is a lot of work is being anything that's um, a character or a little person is being computer graphically made CGI, mm-hmm. and they could take a tall guy. And they can be sh- uh, short, and they could slap them with any kind of effects. They don't have to use practical effects, you know, per se. Um, so, which is, I think, taking a lot of work away from, you know, a special yeah. characters yeah. and stuff like that. But you know, maybe it's a perfect time for me to, you know, semi-retire. Uh, but uh, I welcome any work. No, yeah. no more yeah. effects, makeup. No more heavy station no. costumes. That. You, yeah. you rule out Ghoulies 5. <laughs> I might do that. I might do that. It's a simple mask like that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Give me a wheelchair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, saying that, at the end of Ghoulies 4, there, it, it was hinted on screen, we'll see you again in Ghoulies 4 Part 2. Was that ever I'm mentioned on that. set? Was that ever part of your script I don't or remember. part of the deal? 
I don't remember that being mentioned on set. Um, no. I think I think it was wished uh, yeah. to be a part two. I mean, they should do a part two. I think it would be fu- kind of funny, uh, mm-hmm. uh, reoccurrence or uh, you know, light and dark appearing again um, <laughs> out of the bowels of hell. Um, we're back. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you guys produce it? Dude, I, I can't even get a fucking book out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna get a movie done. <laughs> what are you waiting for? <laughs> You'll do it. You'll do it. What, so, so do you not? I mean, I say like you just do you prefer. Um, I mean, obviously, you've done a lot of uh, makeup roles and suit stuff and out of the suit. Um, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, especially when you get like the festive elf stuff and that kind of thing, a lot of little people are just like, I'm not doing it. You know, yeah. I don't want to be typecast in the way. But at the same time, let's say I wouldn't have known you were stationed, for example. Yeah. You can see it when you know it's you because you're like, I can see mannerisms and things like that, but you wouldn't know off the bat. Now, for example, I was watching Blake Shelton's uh, film Christmas special a few years ago, right? And now, now ho, ho, ho. I, I, yeah, but you know, you were really funny. But I was like, literally, I'm like to my family watching together. I'm like, it's art, Gil, it's art, and they're like, I'm like, seriously, it's art. I'm but surprised then, you recognize me in that beard. It's it's I my did. it's my mannerism. It's my gait. It's my body language. Yeah, maybe was that maybe I don't know, but I literally immediately I was at like, that art, and um, <laughs> but, and that, now and as a fan of your work. I enjoy seeing you in any way, shape, or form. Well, thank you. Now, whether or not now, but for, from your point of view, uh, you know, how do you feel about those kind of roles? Because personally, that one was a good one. It was funny. So it was you know, funny. Right? I enjoyed it's doing that. And, yeah. and you know, I played Santa Claus. I didn't play the traditional elf. No, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, I'm kind of on the fence right now. I'm thinking about that. Um, we we as little people are always made fun of and laughed at uh, with a front of the jokes um and if i can stop that i would but it's it's so hard because people still love to make fun of us little people um i yeah i have played elves uh i had this conversation with phil fonda carroll we sat at a bar one time and i i told her i says you know what i'm phil i'm getting tired of doing the leprechauns and the the elves and and the monsters and the trolls he goes all right listen to me you're an actor, and you get paid well to portray that character. You're not an elf. You're not a leprechaun. You're art. But you're getting paid well to portray. You're an actor. Mm-hmm. You get paid handsomely to portray that character. Why not? Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, there's some little people, friends, that like they object. Uh, I think the one of the organizations is very against little people portraying elves. But then you look at uh, tall actors. They portray they portray elves. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you come after them or talk to them about? Oh, you're portraying elves. It makes little people look bad. But you know, when it comes down to it, um, I'm an actor, and if the part calls for an elf or a leprechaun, I'd be more than happy to do it. Uh, I do worry about building the stigma about you know little people are always played always have played mythical elves, leprechauns, you know. Mm-hmm. Why can't they be like my character, Douglas McGrath in Ally McBeal, or or where Peter Dinklage played, you know, on Games of Thrones. They're not writing that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. The producers, directors, I always encourage everybody to 
you know, on, the, on my website, I encourage people to create a real world of, you know, because there's people in wheelchairs, crutches, little people walking around the world. They, um, that's the real reflection of this world. This is who we are. We're so, we're so, uh, uh, what's the word? Diverse. There's so many different looks. Why be normal? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. why, why, do, you know, why does it have to be a beautiful blonde bombshell? Why can't it be somebody that's a little chubby? Or somebody short statured, somebody of color, uh, somebody with a disability. Put those kind of people in, in real films, real television shows, and and I think it's coming around. It's turning around. I think, uh, like with Peter Dinklage, uh, Peter Dinklage, they're realizing like, hey, you know, maybe that's not so bad to use little people in, in TV shows. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a, a a turnaround now, and people realizing let's. Uh, incorporate people with disabilities it's happening more with disabilities people with uh, wheelchairs people with uh down syndrome uh people um but it's not just happening with little people as much i don't think it's uh it's we're like a couple steps behind the, the progress of, yeah of, of inclusion per se well so. it just comes down to do we want to see this person on screen are they a good actor yeah to be fair, uh, if you're a little person in a wheelchair or whatever, and you're crap, don't want to see you. That's not the point. Yeah. You're a good, uh, I want to see you on screen. It doesn't. It's nothing to do with your stature, and that goes for anyone. There's plenty of there's plenty of plenty of tall actors who I don't want to see. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's it. I mean, but perhaps perhaps you know, uh, fans of yours like us. If we, we want to see you. So I don't mm-hmm. see what, why don't they give us more more art? You know, that's that's yeah. the issue. It's not, and that's the same for anyone. Oh, you know, fans of Peter Dinklage. Okay, we love Peter Dinklage. Okay, great. So they'll put yeah. him in stuff. I don't see, I don't see who gets to pick this. You know? Yeah, I don't see. I, I think because Peter is very well known, he's always the first one to get picked. And of mm-hmm. course, maybe like Warwick Davis. Uh, but somebody on the low totem pole, I don't have the name recognition. I know people are fans of mine and stuff like that. But I don't have the opportunity to do those roles because I have stiff competition, like the Warwick Davises and Peter Dinklage's and the Tony Cox's. Uh, so I, I don't know what to do if I – somebody has suggested, well, why don't you write your own stuff? Why don't you produce your own stuff? Mm-hmm. It takes money to produce your own stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. People want something that's going to generate income at the box office or Netflix. You know, It's all about the dollar. It's not about the actor. It's about the effects. It's about the the crashes and the explosions. They don't care about the actors. They want to see people pay money to see their movie. They don't care. As I don't think they care as much as uh, for the actors as, uh, anymore. So does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I don't watch yeah. films now. They're shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not like the before. Before it was like there's some true drama there's there's meat to the film but uh but it's just like they're putting out so many new i mean they can't even come up with some new story ideas they're revamping old stories old movies and making mm-hmm. them new yeah. and it's like come on come up with something more creative something new something yeah. fresh it's, it's like fast and furious nine yeah <laughs> <laughs> how many can do that yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> but 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 I have to say Star Wars, keep it coming, baby. You know? <laughs> keep it coming. And oh, um, yeah, I mean Mandalorian is in a great example. I'm glad they're using little people in there. I didn't I, I did one day on the job. Uh but uh but they're using, you know, the Jawas. 
a Mandalorian. So I know a lot of little people are enjoying their work on that show. Yeah. So kudos to that. Yeah. We just got to keep our fingers crossed for Willow too, and then you know perhaps we'll get yeah. some more. Uh, there, you know. there is talk. There is talk, and uh, I, I, I think I put in a word to work uh, since I did Leprechauns with him. Um, mm. I did some stunts uh, with him. I did some photo doubling for him, and I even had a uh, uh, a, a small walk-in. They confused me as the leprechaun in the bathroom, and uh, <laughs> I'm not the leprechaun. Uh, and then even 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 Warwick's uh, wife Sammy was on there. My my ex-wife was in there too. We were playing at the casino. Uh, mm-hmm. One, I don't, I can't remember which one it was, but yeah, I I, I worry that that might be filmed overseas, and. Uh, they might shoot that in, you know, England or New Zealand, uh, and they might just use uh, people in Europe to portray mm-hmm. the little people in the village. I think it's a wonderful idea. Uh, Work to reprise Willow again, uh, and so uh, yeah, I, I would love to. I I fly out myself just to be part yeah. of that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I hope I hope Willow two comes out. You know mm-hmm. and. Uh, there's some buzz going around here the, you know, amongst the little people, and I heard some stuff or read some stuff online. Yeah. Well, um, wait, let's let's. I've got to ask about Spinal Tap then before we kind of wrap things up here, yeah. because uh, <laughs> as I said, I bought the VHS when it originally came out. In the, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So like, <laughs> I mean, and you can't. I mean, obviously, it was shot in London, and uh, I guess you came to London to to do that. Was that like one night? What? How did that whole thing work? Yeah, it was. I think it was overnight. We did three three concerts. We did uh, one at Universal Studios here in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. one in New York, and then uh, one in London. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, we did. Uh, Danny Woodburn uh, was the other uh, actor that flew up with me. Um, we did uh, Christmas with the Devil as punk rocker elves, <laughs> and then we did Stonehenge mm-hmm. uh, as as the druids. And then Danny had another part where he played a female something i can't remember what it was but we had a blast with the, with the guys and uh um oh my gosh what's uh i think it's christopher guest's uh, wife uh oh what is, um what is she, is she married to uh jamie lee curtis yes jamie came up to us and she leaned down i think in new york or something like that and she goes welcome to hell <laughs> what the hell was that? Oh, that was Jamie! Oh my god, she was a crack up! Oh my god! Yeah. But it's amazing the transformation uh, into their their rock and roller, you know, Spinal Tappers. You know, it's like they 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 did an awesome job, you know, performing and uh, creating these characters uh, on Spinal Tap, and we had a blast. I I was like really surprised I got to go. And uh, oh, who was there? Um, the director of Time Bandits. Oh, Terry, oh, Terry Gilliam. Gilliam. Terry Gilliam. Yes, thank you. See, I'm getting old. <laughs> oh, fuck. <fine. laughs> uh, Terry Gilliam was there, and he looks at me and Danny says, where were you when I was casting Time Bandits? <laughs> <laughs> Los Angeles, there's a directory of little people. <laughs> Easy to find. I mean, we stand out. Come on. <laughs> So I was over for Time Bandits too. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> got to be one of my favorites. You know, it's mm-hmm. uh, worked. I worked with Mike Edmonds, one of the characters on uh, Snow White. He was on Snow White with me. Okay, mm-hmm. you know, Mike Mike Edmonds uh, and Malcolm Dixon, great, great actors. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah, Time Bandits would have been fun to do. 
Do you think they'd ruin it? This is the thing. It's like the Willow. As much as I want to see Willow and I want to see another Time Bandits, yeah. there's a little part of me that goes, oh, but don't ruin Maybe it. Might be the same. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking about Time Bandits. And Willow, but both. And Willow. I want so, them, but I'm still worried. So how would you think they would ruin it? I mean, you just want to leave it like it is and not create a part two? I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's sequelizing anything after so long. Yeah. We know what happened with Blade Runner, you know? I mean, like, I it's just... watched that one. <laughs> no, not very good. I watched many years. I, I think there's a certain, there's a certain simplicity and charm to, to those movies that, mm. I mean, even okay, uh, compared to the original Star Wars and then the ones they're doing now, and as, as good they are, they're not simple anymore. You know, no, there's a, no. there's there's a lot going on, and it's all effects and stuff, and it, yeah. and there was there was very little real effects back in those movies, you know. And when they did, when there was something fantastic on screen, it was like, oh wow, look, something's happening, you know. Yeah. yeah. But it was it was about it was about those characters, about the people, really, you know. Yeah. And you grew right. to love them over the course of the film. And if True. you just yeah. throw a load of CGI at it, it just becomes soulless, you know. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. It's, the, it's, it's it's when you can tell it's CGI, it just goes like, oh, uh, really. Yeah. You know, the CGI kind of ruins it, I think, for me. But mm-hmm. I, I would love to see the village, you know, Willow develop a new storyline, perhaps. Uh, mm-hmm. Get away from the, uh, I don't know. I, I just like to see, you know, a, a little village of little people living, communing with each other and, and living life as as normal. I don't want to say normal because nobody's normal, but as as regular people, you know, it's a. Uh, that that we're just like human beings, you know. We're just like you and I. Uh, I just happen to be short statured. And yeah. yeah, who was the bald actor in that village? I don't remember his name, uh, but he, I think he's passed. Ah, oh, he was great. Yeah, he was great. Bald? No, he had a funny name in the movie, but I can't remember. I don't know his real yeah, name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, he was definitely definitely quite a character. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. he was good. Yeah, and Warwick was so young. He was a baby. My gosh, he uh, was probably in his early twenties. You know, I think probably yeah. yeah. But hopefully, you know, I think he's up for it, and hopefully, they can you know. Oh yeah, I always definitely yeah. He's he's talking to what's his name, uh, the director. God, oh, my God, oh, Ron Howard. <laughs> Ron Howard, see, thank you. Yeah, I think he's yeah. been speaking with Ron Howard to to maybe do number two. I think they do. Wow. They talked about it on Disney Plus, haven't they? So yeah, yeah. I guess. Oh, they do. Fine, whatever, whatever it takes. <laughs> I hope you're part of it. Uh, I yeah, hope so too. Definitely, definitely. Like I said, I'd fly myself out there, maybe in baggage. But uh, <laughs> we'll do like a we'll go GoFundMe to get art over in. Oh, there the you go. Willow. That's a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> wonderful. I like that idea. <laughs> go fund art. Well, thanks there. again for giving oh, up some time. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, we've had such an extensive career, and we've probably really not done the, the yeah. justice. Right. But um. Well, well, I, I appreciate you uh, reaching out to me. And, uh, of course, uh, so this is called Ghoulies Unflushed, right? But it, yeah. Yeah. I like that you talk about my other parts as well mm-hmm. and, and bring in my, my life. And so I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, nice. you know, nice. it's it, there's only so much you can really say about certain things. And the, the problem is the majority of people we spoke to have had like yourself had such kind of like vast careers. You can't mm-hmm. yeah. not mention this stuff. Mm-hmm. I right. want to know about it. Yeah. You know? I just, well, I mean, I mean, all of my parts have uh, were created and and have been embedded into maybe Ghoulies and some of my other characters. So my experience has evolved and created new characters in special effects makeup, like Ghoulies. So mm-hmm. uh, it kind of all ties in together. Yeah. You know? 
I think, well, it's all that. It's all about windy wind. It's all about windy wind. <laughs> I, think, sorry, I, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> With my butt up in the air. <laughs> it's all, it's all, all in the arms. <laughs> all the arms, yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. Yeah. All, right, so, um, all right, thanks, guys. Hey everybody, this is Luca Bercovici wishing all you Ghoulies fans a happy Halloween. Please dismiss the spirits responsibly after every ritual. You know what I'm talking about. And don't forget, they'll get you in the end. The time has finally come for us to enter Satan's Den. Uh, we are standing just outside the den right now, and I must say, I never thought we would actually be here. Paul, are you ready? Graham, I was literally born ready for this. Yes! Okay, we're going to go and try and describe everything in detail as we walk through. Um, we're walking up the steps outside. This is much bigger than I imagined. Yeah, yeah, much bigger. This is, uh, it looks quite small in the movie compared to this. So just to my right is where uh, Larry, or originally Ned, would have been a barker. So many picture opportunities here. We'll definitely take some and put them on the Unflushed Facebook page later. Uh, wow! We are walking through the tunnel. Just inside the entrance, this is where uh, Sir Nigel would normally be scaring patrons, but he, he doesn't seem to be here right now. Yeah, well, he's, he's probably still getting into his suit. <laughs> and, we're, and we're walking through the spiky doorway. This is insane. Uh, how about can we head towards the torch chamber? I really want to see what's going on in there. Okay. Wow. There it is. Ladies and gentlemen, the pendulum that Merle was tied down to is right in front of us. Paul, lie down on it. I'll do the ties up and make it look real. Go on. Okay, ready. Say, Bobby! Bobby! <laughs> uh, oh, hang on. What was that? I actually just saw something that looked like a ghoulie. Have they added new stuff to this reopening? Uh, I don't know. I can't see anything. Uh, okay. All right, Graham, untie me. Hang on a sec. No, I, I can see something. Uh, 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 there it is. It's just turned the pendulum on. Okay, okay, I'm trying. I'm trying. What's that? Oh, oh yeah. shit. Hey, little fella. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, Jesus Christ. No, no. 